Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, we are living up to our name because this was a kind of crazy week of news, more for the world at large because the world is burning, but also for video games and movies and the things we talk about in our silly news. So we just have a lot to cover from the abrupt closure of Telltale Games to news out of the Tokyo Game Show to the launch of Nintendo Switch's online service to Sony's surprise announcement of the SNES Classic for PlayStation. Um, There was a lot that happened this week, so I'm excited to talk about all that. We will also be doing some spoiler-free discussion of Dragon Quest XI, which I am... 46 hours into in English, and Sean, you said you're about 20 hours into in Japanese? Yeah, that is what my play clock says. That is probably a little bit exaggerated. It's probably more like 16 or 17 hours, but I am a good chunk into that game. I played quite a bit. Awesome. So we have both played a chunk. I'm excited to hear what you think. I could not be loving this game anymore if I tried, and I'm happy to have someone to talk about about it with because I do not know anyone else playing Dragon Quest right now. So, yes. All right. it, is, it is a very fun game. So news is going to be our main topic this week because there was a lot of it, and we will get to that shortly. But let's go ahead and start with some stuff. We'll get into Dragon Quest here in a minute. Sean, what stuff you got for us this week? Yeah, so obviously Dragon Quest XI is a big JRPG, and I'm playing it in Japanese, so it takes a lot of time. But I do have one other thing of stuff, is that I just like ravenously devoured a lot of Spider-Man comics this week because... I hit the sort of early to mid-80s period of Spider-Man, which is a period of Spider-Man comics I had never really gotten much into before. And it is just a ridiculously rich period for that character. And it was something I just wanted to, like, shout out a couple of issues in that, like, general period because I think it's really good. And if people have an interest in going back and reading older Spider-Man comics, I think this is a really strong period to go to. Um, it's the period where Amazing Spider-Man is written by Roger Stern and drawn by John Romita Jr., um, and that's from, like, 1982 to 1984. And then at that period, also, Spectacular Spider-Man was being written by an, uh, a writer named Bill Mantlo and then drawn by a sort of, like, rotating cast of different artists. And it's just this, like, really rich period of Spider-Man's history where they're shifting into kind of new status quo and introducing the Black Cat character. So if you like Black Cat, this is where, like, most of that stuff really gets off the ground. This is where the Hobgoblin character is introduced and gets his first major storylines. And it's right before the Black Suit stuff gets introduced with Secret Wars. So it's this really interesting kind of transitionary period for the character. And there's just a couple of issues I want to point out. One is um, Amazing Spider-Man... Uh, issue 248 is a great one, mostly for, like, the A story of that issue is, is really good, and he strikes like a thunderball. All these have great titles. Um, but the main thing that this issue is famous for is it has a little B story called The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, which is a big um, kind of turning point for me in the history of superhero comics, where you, in this period you're starting to get more experimental stories that do not rely on supervillains and just like taking out a big supervillain is what the story is about and you can get more kind of human character drama kind of stories and the kid who collects spider-man is it's probably about like seven or eight pages long and it is spider-man visits a kid um who who is sort of like famous for loving spider-man and collects newspaper articles and little gadgets and little things that spider-man has left around and little spider-man memorabilia and this kid kind of collects it all and has a, an article written about him in the Daily Bugle, which Peter Parker obviously reads and so goes and finds this kid and just talks to him. 
kind of tells him about his life as Spider-Man. And, it, and it's something where a lot of later Spider-Man comic stories and Insomniac and that kind of stuff um, have all taken from that, like, you know, not just being he says he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, but really living that, like, he's engaging with normal people and just sort of like being a hero on that level and just being with this kid when in a time where I don't want to spoil everything the story does because it's an issue that people should read but this kid really needs a hero in his life at that point and so Spider-Man is there for him and not in a way that he's fighting a supervillain just talking to this kid and telling this kid about you know kind of how he became Spider-Man um that issue also got adapted into a in a really good episode from the 90s cartoon so if that stuff sounds familiar you might have seen that Awesome. The other, yes, that one's really good. The couple of other issues I want to shout out really quick all come from Spectacular Spider-Man, and these are all really interesting and just really different. And again, it's the kind of thing where this is a period where superhero comics just all of a sudden they're like, hey, we don't have to just be the same kind of story and over and over again. We can just do something totally different. So one is uh, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 71 with this gun, IV Kill. Um, is an issue that is basically a PSA issue. Great title, right, Jonathan? That is that is one step away from being a James Bond movie, by the way. With it's this gun, Ivy Kill sounds like a Roger Moore movie that never got made, and I'm mad it didn't because I want that fucking theme song. Yeah, it's a great title for the issue. Um, and the issue itself is really interesting, and it's particularly interesting in this moment in history because what it is at its heart it's it's kind of like a PSA comic, which you got every now and then, usually in this period around like drug use and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it's a comic book story, but really is trying to sort of tell you it's almost like dare or something, you know, if it's the drug thing of like, don't do drugs, kids. And here's like a chart that is shown in like a panel, and like a wise old man character that sits you down and tells you that you need to walk both ways before you cross the street and all that kind of stuff. And so this issue is kind of like that, but it's much more sort of artfully done, I think, than those kind of issues typically are. And it's sort of its main thing is about gun control and particularly um, handgun violence. And it's a really interesting one to go back to in now while we're in 2018 and see just how little a lot of the gun control stuff in America has changed. Like there's this whole back and forth between Peter Parker and another character, um, Lance Bannon, who is another photographer at the Daily Bugle, because they're both like kind of covering the story where a, a, a I think he's like a security officer got shot by handgun, and they like Lance Bannon kind of is the like I'm good. Well, I, we will say for this podcast the bad side of the argument. That's all about oh, the Second Amendment and the you know like the arguments that are are nonsense about it, and it's all the same stuff you've always heard. But then it's also interesting to get a little bit of that like. But this is also, like, way pre, you know, mass shootings being a common thing in America. Like, this is, you know, like, 10-plus years before Columbine even happened. And so it's the focus isn't around the concept of mass shooting at all. It's so focused on the availability of handguns and that, like, sort of, like, contributing to, like, just normal normalized gun violence in a much more mundane way than, than what we kind of – the gun control debate is about in America today – and so it's just a really interesting issue to get back to look back to now. Um, and it does like, have, you know, it has some PSA comic stuff that is very awkward. Like Robbie Robertson at the Daily Bugle straight up has like a whole page where he just like cites statistics and like research and stuff is like no human being has ever talked like this. Like someone just injected their, you know, like poli sci class, like sophomore, like 2000 level poli sci class essay and put it in his Robbie Robertson dialogue. And that's really awkward. 
But when you get to the end of the story, they start doing the stuff where they have these panels that they interject while Spider-Man is on this case to go kind of like track down this shipment of illegal handguns that's coming in at the harbor. And while he's doing that, every once in a while you just get this panel that is just like sort of slapped in the middle of the page of another part just like randomly somewhere in New York City where some other like victim of, of gun violence has occurred. And so it's like somebody you know, was shot in a robbery. Somebody was shot by their dad because he came home late at night and, and the dad didn't know that he was coming home from college. And so he gets shot when he opens up the door because the dad's freaked out. Like, it is that kind of stuff that's, like, legitimately pretty effective. Um, very, like, so, yeah. everyday stuff, it sounds like. Yeah, very everyday stuff. So it's it's, you know, it's very haunting when you get to the end of it in the sense of, like, superhero comics. You know, I've read... This is Spectacular Pirate Spider-Man issue 71. I, that's about where I think 230-ish in Amazing Spider-Man would it be. So that's me reading 300 issues of Spider-Man basically getting up to this point. And there were no issues of Spider-Man up to that point that did something quite like that. And so it's really interesting. There's two other ones I want to shout out really quickly. One is called Waiting for Dr. Octopus. This is the next issue, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 72. This one is cool because it is... Dr. Octopus is not actually the villain of the story. It is this kid who's this, like, elementary school kid who's kind of a science genius that really idolizes Dr. Octopus and makes himself a fake Dr. Octopus suit. But Dr. Octopus has broken out of, of prison, like, coincidentally, that morning. And so while this kid is out on the streets, everybody's actually, like, the cops and Spider-Man are all looking for the real Doc Ock. And they keep on mistaking this kid who's, like, robbing comic book stores and, like, a Toys R Us, basically, and being like, what the fuck is Doc Ock doing? Why is he robbing all this stuff? And, and the confrontation between Spidey and the kid and Spidey figuring out, like, what's going on is really interesting. It's a fun... It's a sort of a, a little bit more of a goofy story, but then it also, again, it has like kind of more of that Spider-Man just sort of not having to save the day by punching somebody in the face, but by helping out somebody with like, you know, their kind of misunderstanding. And then, of course, by the end, the kid that was obsessed with Dr. Octopus and wanted to emulate Dr. Octopus as he's this cool, like, badass supervillain guy is like, no, Spider-Man's the shit. And he's trying to like invent his own version of web fluid, and that's very good. Nice. And then, yeah, the last one I want to shout out is uh, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 80 called I Cover the Waterfront. This one is great because this is told entirely from J. Jonah Jameson's perspective. That's awesome. It's so good because old, you know, Jameson is an old man at this point and he has this uh, relationship with this scientist, Dr. Marla Madison, that has built up across like a lot of issues. They've had this kind of on and off romance for a while, these two characters. And, and JJ started, gets this sense of like, he needs to prove himself as this man and this like old school reporter who came up, you know, like, as like a you know beat reporter in the fucking great depression is like he's a tough old bird but he's been you know like sitting in his cozy office for for too long and so he wants to go cover a story himself so he's covering some like sort of like illegal smuggling or something going down at the waterfront and so it's all told from his point of view with his narration and in the background you see spider-man sort of like first you see peter parker notice that jj's doing this when he's in the daily beagle office and then throughout the rest of the story spider-man is kind of tracking him all the way without jj realizing it and kind of solving all the real problems and getting in all the fights while while jameson's trying to cover this story it's very funny it's very kind of heartwarming at the same time because it's you know it kind of humanizes the jameson character a lot more than these stories usually have a chance to since it's told from his point of view and so that's another one i think if, if you're a if you, if you played Marvel Spider-Man and you're like, man, Spider-Man's really cool. I want to read some old Spider-Man comics. Those are 
uh, some classics you can go back to from this period because they, they are, I was just really struck by how good they were and it caused me to just read, I think I read something like 30 to 40 issues of Spider-Man in the past week and that's a lot of comics. Nice. So yeah, they're really good. People should check them out. Uh, just out of curiosity, because I actually don't know, what is the relationship between Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man, the two runs? Um, they're, so they're basically, it's, it's, it's interesting because it kind of like goes back and forth depending on who's the like editor of the Spider-Man books. But generally they are a little bit separate and kind of deal with like, they, they both are concurrent and sometimes storylines will cross over. But generally speaking, you can kind of read Amazing Spider-Man and be fine or kind of read Spectacular Spider-Man and be fine. Um, and, and, you know, they, they kind of have slightly different focuses. I would say Amazing Spider-Man deals more with, like, the big supervillain stuff. And Spectacular Spider-Man is a little bit more focused on Peter's, like, supporting cast in a slightly more small-scale stories. Um, but then occasionally, like, the period I'm at right now, with which is, like, deep into the black suit and, like, the symbiote doing all that stuff. Right now, there's a huge amount of crossover between both stories. And it would be basically impossible to read Spider-Man without reading both of them. So it kind of waxes and wanes with how interconnected they are. Okay, so, because I just didn't know if it was, like, is one of them, like, Ultimate Spider-Man, like, it's a different universe, or same no, continuity? Yeah. Okay. yeah, they're definitely same continuity. It's, it's yeah, it's an interesting thing that, like, I'm almost to the point now where Web of Spider-Man becomes a thing, so I'm almost to the point where there are three monthly Spider-Man comics going um, that, that I'm probably going to mostly have to read, so my Spider-Man reading work is going to um, triple, basically. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's this was at the point where Spider-Man was. is just like so popular they have to be doing multiple issues with multiple runs a month basically, right? Yes, yeah. It's a, it's a lot. And yeah. I'm kind of looking forward to it and kind of dreading it at the same time because it means like I'll get a lot more Spider-Man, but it means that like my forward progress in getting to new storylines and stuff is going to slow even more. So it's 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 a hard time, but I'm I'm working my way through it. Awesome. Well, before we talk about Dragon Quest, I do want to give a quick shout-out to a really awesome movie I saw last night. Uh, and I was tweeting about this, and people liked my tweets, and that's nice uh, of people. But I was just uh, heartened that other people are also interested in this movie. This is a film called A Simple Favor. It's the new movie by Paul Feig. Have you heard of this, Sean? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, it's a movie by Paul Feig, who famously has done things like Bridesmaids and the uh, 2016 Ghostbusters Things like that. Um, created Freaks and Geeks. Everyone loves Paul Feig, except the weird Ghostbusters people who are just not pleasant to hear from. Um, but anyway, this is his new film, and it's sort of a drama on the surface. It gets more complicated than that the further you go. It stars Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. And it's not like it's a completely under-the-radar film. It's a major release. It's done well at the box office so far for a movie of this like level in September but I just don't want it to like fall under the radar for people because uh, as I said last night this is a three course meal of a movie with several very strong drinks served on the side and I enjoyed the fucking hell out of it it's essentially if I were to describe the plot which is very hard to describe it's sort of like Gone Girl if Gone Girl were good and that's just me because okay, I'm not yeah. a I'm not a person who liked that movie. I can't speak to the book by Gillian Flynn. I haven't read it. But uh, the movie by David Fincher was not my cup of tea. It's long. It's it's I think dull and dark 
unnecessarily so and self-important. But that's a movie basically about a uh, a woman who disappears, and we f- kind of find out she has kidnapped herself. Is the plot of Gone Girl? A Simple Favor is sort of similar, but it's not from a a, a male perspective, like with the Ben Affleck character in that. This is about Anna Kendrick plays a single mother who like runs this like uh, mom based vlog. And she doesn't really have any friends. And then she meets Blake Lively's character, who is like this rich uh, fashion design PR person who is very aloof, but they become friends. And then one day, uh, the Blake Lively character completely disappears, and the Anna Kendrick character starts trying to poke around and figure out what happened. Uh, But that is not a great description of the plot, because it gets way more twisted beyond that. Uh, I, this was my best attempt at describing the sensation of watching this movie, and I think I got it pretty good. I said, it's sort of like if Gone Girl and Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo got drunk and had a really weird threesome with another movie that had both a sense of humor and a respect for the interior lives and relationships of women that extend beyond male-oriented symbolism or abject nihilism. So, uh, that is my convoluted way of saying I found this movie very interesting. It's the kind of film that over two hours I just kept kind of being blown away by where they were going with it and how crazy things were getting and the best part i have to give a shout out audiences at movies in iowa city are fucking awesome even if there's like five people in the theater because there's i don't know what it is but every movie i've been to in iowa city somebody in the theater is really into it and i kind of love their like vocal into it quality in this one it was two women sitting behind me who every time something like vaguely surprising happened in the film would just verbally like or would audibly just go (gasps) like gasp and i actually think that's really fun in a movie that is clearly designed to try to get that reaction out of people you know is when you get Mm -hmm. the audible gasps it was the perfect punctuation there should be an audio commentary option on the movie which is the audience reaction gasp track because it can be a very fun way to watch it but anyway i really fucking liked this movie I absolutely want a franchise now. It's not going to happen, but I would love a series of movies where Anna Kendrick runs a uh, a mom-based like fat, uh, like kitchen vlog while solving like cold cases on the side. That would be fucking awesome. Not going to happen, but it would be really awesome. Uh, she's so, I love Anna Kendrick. She's great in this. She's finally been freed from Pitch Perfect and is in real movies again, and that makes me very happy. Um, and she gets to sing in this one, too, if you were wondering. She doesn't have to be in the acapella movie to sing. They let her sing in this one as well. Um, so it's very good. The costumes are amazing. I said Blake Lively looks like she's Marlena Dietrich's somehow more fam- fabulous-looking granddaughter. Uh, and if you don't get that reference, go watch some Marlena Dietrich movies. They're very interesting. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that was a good movie. There's something about being in film school. I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast before because this podcast has extended our entire collegiate academic careers. Uh-huh. Um, there's something about being in film school where I lose all energy to go see new movies. I don't know. I, and it's it's not even as simple as, like, you watch a lot of movies in film school because I'm actually not right now. We're, we're, I'm just not in a mode where we have, like, a ton of screenings every week, at least by my standards. Um but there's just something about it where it gets to the weekend and I scroll through Fandango and I'm like, all right, what's what's on this week? And I'm like, oh, these movies look pretty good. There's a lot I'd like to go see. Too bad I can't. And I, it's like, I can. There's no barrier to me going and seeing a movie. I just lose all energy for it. And I made myself go see a movie last night. And I was happy because it was good. So there you go. I like movies. I like movies too. Mm-hmm. 
That's going to be when I finally do my dissertation for my PhD. That's going to be my statement. I'm going to come in. I'm going to lay down a book that just says, I like movies over and over, like The Shining, All Work and No Play Makes Jack a Dull Boy style. And I'm going to walk out and see what happens. I, th- I think they'll, there'll be like a standing ovation as you close the door behind you. One person will start it, and then they all will start clapping, and then they'll kick you out of school. Yeah, uh, they won't clap because the dirty secret about film academia is I don't think most people in it actually like movies. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's true of all <laughs> different sort of academic discourses and forums and schools. Is I, there, yeah. There's a certain point where it's like, I don't like reading anymore. I can't read books anymore because if I read books, it hurts. Yes. That's why you're reading comic books. Exactly, because it, 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 it hurts, but in a way that gives me pleasure. So. That was weird. That's I hope little, no one likes yeah, that. Yeah, that's a little insight into my personal life. Yeah. All right. It's all in Any, context. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's a good movie. I recommend it. Uh, let's talk about a very good video game that I would also recommend Dragon Quest XI. It's called Echoes of an Elusive Age in America. What's the Japanese title, Sean? Oh, I don't remember off the top oh, of my okay. head. It's like I think that is a pretty decent translation from what I remember. There's something that has like Motomete at the end of it. It's I think Sugarashi oh something or other like that. Anyway. Something, something um, that effect. Yeah, so I'll let you look that up. Uh anyway, I really love this game. As I said, I think as of this afternoon I'm like forty six, forty seven hours into it. I've played a lot. I'm pretty confident I hit the halfway point about 40 or 41 hours in, so I should be seeing credits at about 80 or 90 hours. This is definitely a very long video game, but I am loving it. I'm loving it even more now. Um, I, I don't even want to get into how good the story gets. I will say this. If there are people out there telling you that the story of Dragon Quest XI is simplistic and predictable, they've played maybe four hours of this game. Maybe. Because it is not, it is amazing, it is brilliant, it is one of the best pieces of high fantasy I have seen this side of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It is a fucking masterpiece and I love it. Sean, you are new to the game. How are you liking it? Um, I like it a lot. Yeah, so personally, like, I don't know if we mentioned yet, I think it was kind of implied that I'm playing the Japanese version that I imported. Um, So there's... We talked a little bit before we started recording that this is going to cause some strange problems because the they saw fit in the localization to change some of the names, which is kind of a tradition in Dragon Quest because it's like, you know, that goes back to the Dragon Warrior days and, and they kind of did a sort of like fakey old English localization, that kind of stuff. So a lot of those traditions have stayed around. So, I will say, can I just say something really quick about the localization? Uh, sure, go ahead. I think the localization is fantastic. I'm not a fan of the voice acting, and I turned it off immediately because it's not there in Japanese anyway. Um, yeah. I, I do think it's a it's one of the best localizations I've ever seen. It does make changes. I think they are the right changes to do it for English. Yuji Hori, the director, was very involved in this localization, more so than I think he's ever been for one of the Dragon Quest games. And uh, I do think it's... So I just don't want to say, like, it's different, but that's not us criticizing it. It's yeah. a big game with a giant world, and I think they made changes because... Not just because they wanted to fuck with things, that's all. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm playing the Japanese version, which has the subtitle of Sugi Sarushi Tokyo Motomete, which is, that's the Echoes of an Elusive Age. That's fine. That's a good, like, poetic translation of that. Um, but, yeah, so Dragon Quest Eleven is really fascinating because I'm probably going to end up just repeating a lot of stuff you said the first time you talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, but it, it does, it feels like 
like what it, it kind of honestly feels like what if we made Dragon Quest 2 in a way that's like really weird what if you had Dragon Quest 1 and then you made a sequel to that game in 2018 obviously I haven't played I played Dragon Quest 1 2 and like probably the first third maybe half of Dragon Quest 3 kind of fell off of it so there's a lot of Dragon Quest in between then and this game that I have not played so obviously there are changes and different things that have happened um but yeah the 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 bizarre thing about Dragon Quest 11 is it kind of feels like you know there's a party there are modernizations there's a lot of stuff that is more modern about it but it it makes me feel like when i was playing dragon quest 1 and it's fucking nuts and that's down to some stuff that like little tiny things that they did change in the english version based on uh footage i saw is i get why they did this and it's probably actually better in that is more consistent but they changed the normal menus to look more like the way the detailed menus look that has kind of like a brown aged sort of aesthetic to it the Japanese version of the game, the menus are straight up. And other than when you go into like examine an item more closely, the, the menus are just black boxes with a plain white outline. That is the exact same way the menus looked in Dragon Quest One. The sound effects of when you like defeat enemies or like finish battles and level up, or when you go to an inn, all of those are exactly like Dragon Quest One. It is MIDI music, like Dragon Quest One. There is no voice acting. There's no option in Japanese. That's not something you can get at all. It was made without voice acting so that they could, you know, adjust the the writing and make the writing as dynamic as they needed um, in production. So there's no voice acting at all. And there's something so fascinating to me about let's just make a fucking it's just a, it's just Dragon Quest. It's just Dragon Quest made in 2018 with obviously all the production values of a modern game. This game is just unbelievably gorgeous. It's it, it so takes, gorgeous. It's in in so much of it is about like obviously the art direction, but there's something about that like sense of you know people who say that there's no advantage to you know at a certain point having better like technology and and, and more advanced consoles. Is that at some point it's like when you look at this, you're like. Yeah, like you could get like a a really incredible evocation of this art style on you know consoles that aren't as powerful as this. But like, there's something about like fucking let's take fucking Toriyama and throw at like you know full PS4 technology at it. That's like amazing to me. And yes. this like you know the, the the detail in a lot of those character models and the sense of texture on the cloth and that kind of stuff and the hair. It's like this is just incredible. Yeah, I have to say. You, you all know I am a Nintendo Switch ride or die. I love that system, and I was initially disappointed that we would not have that day and date with the PS4 version. I'm not that way anymore. If you're holding out on the Nintendo Switch version, I'm sure there will be advantages to that in portability. This is a long game, after all. It'll be fun on the go. But it is so absurdly beautiful, it's going to take a significant hit. And I think... If you've just looked at videos on YouTube, you might not get that because I don't think you'd get the full effect. But when you see it on your TV in 1080p or 4K or whatever, uh, I, I think it is easily one of the best-looking games on the PS4. I, and that's not grading it on a curve or anything. I think it is right up there with The Witcher 3 or God of War or something like that. Yeah, because it, you know, it obviously is not as technically sophisticated as God of War in, in that sense, and it's not like I'm not blown away by the like I can't believe how quickly they're loading in assets and that kind of stuff that God of War did. But there is just this ability to realize this very particular art style that obviously we are both massive fans of. That like you know millions of people across the world are all massive fans of of Toriyama's work, and then also like more specifically, I've you know since playing Dragon Quest One, have become a huge fan of the specific kind of particularly monster design that Toriyama brought 
brought to Dragon Quest because there's like the, even if the rest of the game was terrible and like the story was shit and I hated the combat and all that which all the stuff in the game I, I still love but even if that shit was terrible just for the fucking enemy designs this game would be a top 10 game of this year like the that it's it's one of the most fun things about advancing in that game and getting to a new area is be like I want to see the new weird motherfucking shit that that I haven't seen yet. I want to see like the giant monsters that are like cool and scary looking, and then also I want to see like uh, you know I got kind of I'm through that whole desert area that's you know not early early but one of the earlier parts of the game. And and once you get like kind of halfway through that area, you card you start encountering the magicians um, that are enemies that you find in Dragon Quest One. And I was so happy this like these dopey fucking dudes that like wearing these big burlap sacks over their heads. That's like these just evil wandering magicians that are all over the place in the Dragon Quest world that you just murder you know ad nauseum. I'm so happy they're in this game. I agree completely. And uh, good news is, by the way, Sean. 46 hours into the game, I've been to most of the locations. There are still new monsters regularly. Great. Like there are, there is no end in sight of new monsters in this game. And I don't know how many JRPGs you can get 50 hours into and still be seeing like actively new enemy designs. They are so great. Um, there was, I have to recommend. There's a wonderful piece on Polygon this week where Polygon mm-hmm. interviewed Yuji Hori, the director of the Dragon Quest series. And uh, just a, a great interview, and one of the things he talks about of like why they got Akira Toriyama and why they went this direction with monster designs over time. I loved what he said. He said, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but something to the effect of, we wanted it to be fun to fight the monsters. We didn't just want them to be scary. We wanted them to be kind of inviting and cool and fun to look look at. We don't say you kill the monsters. We say you defeated them because we want you to be actively engaged by the combat system and feel like there's, you know, fun, interesting visual stuff going on. And I think that's just such a great, like, little philosophical choice that has animated Dragon Quest over the years. And I agree completely with what you say about the art style. Uh, the the world of Erdrea in English, I don't know what it is in Japanese. Um, it's something, I can't remember what it is. I remember the beginning of it is Roto, which is the name of the legendary warrior from the early Dragon Quest games. But I don't okay. remember where it goes from there. Yeah, but Erdrea, the world, is... It feels like a world. It feels like a continent that you would move around and there would be different kind of crops and there would be different kinds of topography and there would be different kinds of weather, but it all feels continuous in a way that I think most open world games of this scope don't even quite capture. It's it's really, I think it's on par with something like Breath of the Wild in just being like a really beautiful, thought-through visual landscape. Um, but again, with the Akira Toriyama art style... And also, this game, I can say after 50 hours, has the, like, just most astonishing use of color I've ever seen in a video game. The colors, like, assault your eyes. It is so absurdly colorful, but in, not in a gaudy way at all. It's, it's just, it is beautiful. It looks like, you know, like Ghibli-esque almost. Just this beautiful painterly, you know, handcrafted sense of color. It's not. It's all digital, obviously. But you just, you get that sense consistently throughout. And and there are moments when it leans on that. And I'm just overcome emotionally because this world is so beautiful. Yeah. And to go back to what I was saying earlier about this feeling like it's it's weirdly like Dragon Quest Two. I think like to to explain that sensation because it's so bizarre to me. Every time I play the game, there's a sense of like, I'm out of time in a weird way is that 
imagine if you played Final Fantasy one, and then the next day, you're, after you finish Final Fantasy one, you jumped immediately to Final Fantasy fifteen or Final Fantasy thirteen. You would be lost. There's be like, what the fuck? Especially like, I think fifteen. There's maybe a little bit more because fifteen gets more into the nostalgia stuff with like the car radio. But particularly thirteen, you would be utterly lost. You'd have no idea where you were. If you, it would be utterly crazy. Even something like Mario, if you played. I mean, fuck. Like, let's let's give you credit of saying Super Mario Brothers instead of Donkey Kong or Mario right. Brothers. But you play Super Mario Brothers, and then the next day you play Super Mario Odyssey. There would be, you'd, I think, you'd have more anchoring than with the Final Fantasy example. But you'd still be like, what the fuck? Like, it's it's because it's a completely different game. You played Dragon Quest One, which I did last year for the first time in Japanese, and then you go and you play Dragon Quest Eleven, which is fucking like thirty years later. It, it is so in sync. It is so on par. The same aesthetic design is the same musical sense in a lot of like the same sort of musical cues. It's the same sense of storytelling and world design. It's the same fucking combat system. The combat system, other than the addition of a party, which you don't have in the first Dragon Quest game, is literally the exact same. It is the same spells. It is the same level up system. You have like the skill thing on top of it, but that's all. Like it is so fucking a Dragon Quest game, like Dragon Quest One with a little bit extra systems on top. Obviously, like you know, more fleshed out story kind of stuff. But even then, like. I can very easily envision a lot of the story beats happening in Dragon Quest One style. It would be more abbreviated, obviously, because you don't have like the full cinematic camera. But nothing that they're doing in that department feels like it is outside the realms of possibility of what they would have tackled in some of those older games. Because even the core basis of the story is still building off of like the core Dragon Quest premise that is like one of the most influential fantasy stories in like the Japanese modern Japanese like Western fantasy tradition which is the yusha or the hero character being born and then having to go defeat the mao or the demon king and it's like the like if you watched any random anime series made in like the last 20 years you've probably seen something that is basically playing off that concept because there's fucking dozens of things that do that because that's like the basic core structure of every dragon quest story at least the ones that i've played and so it's just utterly amazing to me that you would have something that there's such a tremendous gap of time and it's not just like a little bit of nostalgia stuff on top like like the car radio in final fantasy 15 it's like in its bones it is still a dragon quest game and it fucking works and which shouldn't surprise me because dragon quest one still worked for me when i played it last year but it's 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 just incredible to me that that because there's no other there is no other game I've played or seen or know to have existed in, like, last 20 years that is, like, a full 3D console game. That not something that's trying to be a specific throwback. That is a JRPG. Like, JRPG. Persona is not, like, a JRPG JRPG. No Final Fantasy game has been a JRPG JRPG since, like, Final Fantasy IX. Maybe ten, maybe. It's like, this game is, you know, there's no fucking active time bullshit. There's none of that shit. Like, it is just a JRPG where you're going around the world with this very earnest story, with these very earnest characters, like, going to all these these towns and encountering interesting characters and then moving on and getting a new party member. Like, it is so a, like, JRPG-ass JRPG to its core in a way that, like, no other game has been in fucking forever, and it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And to add on to what you're saying there... If that, like, this is praise. This is not saying, like, oh, God. Because one way you could look at this, the glass half empty is, oh, God, look at Dragon Quest. It hasn't evolved in 35 years. And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. The way to look at it is, look how thoroughly this team has honed the fundamentals. 
And I don't think I have ever had such an appreciation for what the fundamentals are of a video game, especially as a narrative medium, until I played Dragon Quest XI and saw that because this team has been honing that basic thing for 35 fucking years now, they are delivering like narrative beats in conjunction with a deeply thought-out, fleshed-out gameplay system that hits me ridiculously hard. I got to another one today. There are three so far big moments in Dragon Quest XI. I'll go four. There are four that have destroyed me, like made me tear up, left me like walking around my house just thinking about it. Like this is some of the most powerful storytelling I have ever seen. I'm not even saying they're like super sad moments. I'm not spoiling what they are. But, like, there are just moments where they do something in the story where you feel like the foundation, the bones of this thing is so strong that whatever story they want to tell, they can tell it with a depth and a precision of feeling and emotion and thematic resonance that is nearly unparalleled. Not completely. Things like Persona exist, but... I am just consistently astonished because I think the fundamentals of, you know, what a gameplay system is, what a world looks like, what you need in a team, how you pace a long RPG story, those are constantly being questioned, especially I think in our day and age when all these things are evolving very rapidly in the video game industry. And over here, Dragon Quest is saying, no, we've been honing this for years with essentially the same leadership team, other people coming in and out underneath, but the same leadership team, same creative vision, and you get to Dragon Quest XI, which is, by the way, somewhat self-consciously a throwback, because there are several Dragon Quest games uh, in the middle that have played with narrative dynamics more, like Dragon Quest IV is a five-act thing where it like goes backwards in time, Dragon Quest V... Uh, chronicles the main character's life from birth to adulthood, things like that. Um, so this is much more kind of a back-to-basics thing. But it's not back-to-basics in the sense of we're going to strip down this story and make it super simple. It's we're going to go back to basics and really explore the bones of this foundation. And it, it's an astonishing thing to behold. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And it just goes to show that, like, it's, it's never been that the like core structure and the core design of those classic JRPGs were flawed or like outdated in any way. It just more goes to show that they are like really hard to execute very well. I think it's like it's a genre that has always been very hard to do really well and and you know it gets a lot of credit for you know being a like innovator in storytelling in the console space of video games back when there wasn't a lot of storytelling going on. And so, like, but, yeah, in the more modern age, the, the kind of, like, we're holding those things up to higher standards. That's where, like, I think Final Fantasy starts to sort of waver and not know what it really wanted to be in the late 90s and early 2000s and would have an entry that's good for some people. That other, like, you know, it's, like, really splits the fan base. Like, I feel like every fucking Final Fantasy since, like, 7 has basically split the fan base, at least down the middle. And this just goes to show this, like, sometimes sticking the course and, like, understanding what you're making and, and seeing... That like there has never been anything fundamentally wrong or old about those the like the core design of those original Dragon Quest games, and that all you have to do is do them really well. Obviously, that's incredibly difficult to do, but it proves that there's nothing like it's not like an impossible task. It can be done, and Dragon Quest XI proves it. The other thing I want to talk about about Dragon Quest XI, this kind of goes to a little bit of like the Japanese version of the game, because I'm 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 very glad having now like gotten pretty deep into it that I decided to play this version is there's something really interesting about 
the like voice acting or like no voice acting thing in this like big 3D game in these big scenes because it was, if that was the one part of the game even though I generally agree with you and Jonathan that like you know those sort of traditional JRPGs like if I played Octopath Traveler there's no way in the world I would ever play it with the voice acting on there's something about like mm, with this big 3D game and it's going to have like 3D cutscenes and all that kind of stuff I was pretty wary about the idea of like not being able to have any voice acting at all, like not even have it be an option like for the English version, because I have a lot of bad memories of playing Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess and feeling like that game is a game that should have had voice acting because it tried to do big story scenes and big long cutscenes and big just like boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of text throwing shit at you that's like this is a terrible format to try to present this information and it was like Ocarina of Time had some of this stuff but it was way more abbreviated and they were shorter and Twilight Princess just has a lot of those very long scenes and I was worried I would get another one of those and something that I think is really smart about Dragon Quest Eleven is that it never feels like again I'm still relatively early on I'm like 20 hours in or whatever I don't have like all the party members yet um so there's a chance that there's longer scenes later, but so far, even like the more story heavy, like individual scenes never go much longer than like three to five minutes. And you're like moving on to the next thing and they're, they get the point across and there's an almost like silent film kind of methodology to the like cutscene cutscenes that show you that like you honestly don't really need to be able to read Japanese to understand what's going on in the main like cutscene things that aren't just characters talking to each other because all the action is communicated so visually they get the point across really efficiently and then move on to the next thing and that's one of the things I think makes the story work so well for me and then why it doesn't need the voice acting is that it never is lingering on anything long enough that you feel like you need the voice acting to like bring characterization or something to it because it's so direct and to the point and so efficient with how it is telling its story in those moments. Another thing that is also really nice with the Japanese version that I think helps the voice acting not being there at all is that Japanese is a language that in the way it is structured so heavily allows you, you know, if you're doing kind of more exaggerated fantasy writing, which obviously Dragon Quest is, you can very easily characterize characters just in, like, the manner of their speech. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, you have Camus. I don't know what he's called in yours, but the roguish dude, Camus. Albert Eric. Camus, my bro. Eric. Um, you have him. And, and the way he talks is completely different from, like, Veronica, the mage, or Senya, her sister. Again, I don't know what she is in your game. Serena. Senya, her sister. Serena. Um... That they all, like, it's the kind of thing where if you were, you know, you had a bad English teacher and they would give you those, those like, reading quizzes about, like, a quote identification. It was, like, Great Gatsby or whatever. And it's like, oh, who said this thing? Well, maybe, and you have to, like, use all these context clues to be like, ah, Tom Buchanan's an asshole, so he probably said this line because it sounds like something an asshole would say. In in Japanese, you for, like, something like Dragon Quest Eleven, it would be impossible to give that quiz because it would be basically impossible to ever mistake a line that Camus said and that Senya said because the way they speak, even if they were giving the exact same information, which they do constantly if you go into the, like, party tab and talk to your buddies, and they, like, will constantly be telling you, like, oh, they'll give you a little bit of flavor text and then tell you, to like, oh, you need to go to the west to that city to go get the thingy. The way they communicate that information, even though it is literally the same and most of the words will be the exact same, is so subtly different in just, like, you know, Camus, something as simple as Camus will end a sentence with, like, the particle they, like, they, to make him, like, I'm cool and rough and tumble, and then Senya is very polite and will refer to everybody with the Sama suffix and that kind of stuff. It, it adds such clear, direct characterization that their voices are so strikingly clear in my head that I'm kind of half playing a game while playing Dragon Quest XI of being like, 
what are who are all the voice actors I would cast as these characters because the characters are so stark and clear and communicate so effectively through that dialogue um, that it just works perfectly for me and, and it doesn't miss a beat even when it is like fully 3D presented and doesn't have the abstractness that a sprite game has. Well, I couldn't agree more because while the English version does add voice acting, you can turn it off immediately. It's in the menu. It's an option. Just toggle it off. That's what I did immediately because I it, this game is not intended to have voice acting. It's it's not a thing that is missing in Japanese. If they wanted the money to do voice acting, it's fucking Dragon Quest. Square Enix would give them the money. It's the same with the soundtrack. If they wanted this to be a 75-piece fucking orchestra doing every piece in the game, Square Enix would be like, how big do you want us to write the check? This game will sell. You know what I mean? Like, these are creative choices, not mistakes. And I, I am perpetually frustrated by Western critics who write these things off as mistakes when they are deliberate creative choices. But, yes, like, so you can turn the voice acting off, and here's how I know this localization is something special, Sean. Everything you just said resonates with how they've translated it into English. Um, All of that is gotten across. They primarily do it through the use of dialect. They do a lot of dialect work, so, like, people in this area will talk like they are from France. People in, uh, well, you just would have met... Well, no, never mind. That wouldn't apply. But, like, uh, I'm trying to think of where you would be 20 hours in. There's another area that is kind of modeled on Spain. Um, They have uh, one of the characters and the place he comes from. They make very Scottish in how it's written. And I actually think it works because this is a game about traveling a world. And I think that makes sense to kind of give each place its own flavor. It's very well thought out. But also, like, there is a distinct challenge in translating Japanese, especially if the Japanese property is making use of all the possibilities of the Japanese language you're referring to here. And I think they've done a very good job in the localization of trying to get the same effect across through rough allegories in English. And uh, I think that means they're taking liberties with it at times. But I just, I have to say as someone, I'm playing it without voice acting, in English, just reading it, and I agree 100%. I not only don't feel like anything is missing without voices, I think it is so enhanced um, and, you know, I am, I'm a person who I do not take it as a given that games should have voice acting. Um, and that comes from, for me, I also do not take it as a given that movies should have sound because for a long time they did not. And that uh, was not just a technological thing. It was also a choice. And I think it's a choice here, too. And, um, you know, on top of, from what I've seen, I think the English voice acting is bad because it's a Square Enix dub and Square Enix dubs are bad. Um, I just think there is an effect to this game where... Music is the sound layer, the text is the story layer, and they they meld. And then there's the visual layer, of course. And those three things meld so perfectly. I don't think there's room for voice acting when I when I see it in like a cutscene on YouTube or something. I'm like, this is clashing. This doesn't. There's not space in this thing that they've built. It's like if you dubbed a silent movie. Like if you went and took a Chaplin short and dubbed it, it'd be like that doesn't. The space doesn't exist. That's not how it was made. That's not what's here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it just gives, again, it, it it helps the game be able to, like, communicate its point so quickly. And it's one of the things that, that makes the story work. That it's like, it just doesn't need the voice acting. And like you're saying, like, the voice acting kind of would get in the way. Even with, like, my reading speed in Japanese being a lot slower than my reading speed in English. Even then, it's like, 
I, you know, the, there's something about just being able to like get through the, the the dialogue at exactly what your reading speed is and processing it that way and not having to stop and listen for all the voice acting or choose to skip the voice acting, which is something, you know, in, in other games like a Persona game, sometimes you have to like figure out like which version of this experience do I want to have right now? Do I want to stop and get all of it or do I want to, am I like kind of like under the clock or want to rush through this stuff? And Dragon Quest Eleven doesn't like deal with any of that shit it's just like here you go it, this is the version of the game this is the way that the story is communicated the most effectively and allows you to sort of sink into the world that way and so yeah i i i will defer to your expertise with the english version of the game and say that, that is probably what you should do with that version as well yeah it's it's just not required you know it's an option in the menu they i i think the people who localized it knew that like you know, we do not have to force this on people, and in fact, we probably shouldn't. And, uh, you know, the English version does have a bunch of all of these other updates. They added the run button, and they have some of the visual enhancements you've talked about. Has any of that stuff been patched into the Japanese version? Nope. The, the okay. disc I got is what that game is. So I, I'm fine with that. It actually, it blew my fucking mind when the other day, I just like to get some context with the voice acting and, like, the, the localization stuff. I looked at a, a couple of videos of the English version of the game, and it blew my fucking mind when that dude started sprinting. And I was like, what? How could you? And I was, I like, turned back on the game. I was like, what? How are you sprinting? It's like, there's no sprint button. What the fuck is going on? And then I had to look it up. It was like, oh, they put that in the English version. That's really weird. Yeah, it's. I actually love it. It's it's a great little feature. It's really nice because you just hold down R and he just moves. And you don't even, you can, like, move the stick, but you don't have to hold it forward. It's very nice for some of the long distances you go on. Um, they've done that. There's the first person mode, which I hope they add that to the Japanese version. It's really, it's kind of like a photo mode. It's very cool. I've taken a lot of neat pictures that way. Um do does the Japanese version have you can use the L buttons to advance text and stuff? Yes, because actually in Japanese in the Japanese version, um, L two is confirm and R two is like basically L two is is circle and R two is X. Okay, and so like they basically so that's how those buttons work. So if you wanted to, you don't have to use the face buttons at all, and you can play through the, basically the entirety of Dragon Quest. Well, I play a lot of it with just one hand on the controller here because you can do everything with L for confirms. Um, and then I don't know, because R is run, I don't know if they have the cancel button mapped to one of the triggers, but yeah, they've, it's, it's, because it's a simplistic control scheme, they've made very good use of the controller, but yes, um, apparently they are bringing a lot of the English, well, this is speculation, but they did announce today at the Tokyo Game Show that they are still working on the Nintendo Switch version, the Switch version is going to be called Dragon Quest XI-S, um, and they, they're saying that it's, it's going to be, it's called, it's S for special. They're adding stuff to it. The speculation is they're going to bring it into parity with the features in the North American version, uh, which means there's also speculation they will add Japanese voice acting. Um, because hmm. I guess one of the guys on stage says the S could also stand for Seiyu, the, the Japanese word for voice actor. Um, so I'm curious if they're going to do that. And I'm curious if they do that, if they make you buy the Switch version to get it in Japan. And they don't offer like a DLC patch sort of thing for for the PS4 version. That would be kind of weird, but yeah, we'll see. It's because uh, they they did this was pretty extensive what they did for the North American version, um, and it was not an outside team. Like uh, I mean, an outside team localized it, but this was Yuji Horii and and the team at Armor Studio in Japan who made all of these enhancements to it in ways that they thought like this is what Westerners might like. So. You know, they really tried to make this one a hit, and it's apparently sold, like, well by the standards of the series over here, which is nice. Yeah. 
All I know is that I will revolt if they patch out my black box white text menus. I want yes. I want the big black box with the white outline and the white text. Well, you I have don't want your fancy menu bullshit. You have it on disc, so you can play it that way whenever you want. It's true. Yes, so it's like I don't want to have to. I don't, you know, at least give the choice and the options because I don't want to have to delete a patch if they patch it. Yes, just give me my fucking um, black menus. By the way, while we're on the topic of Dragon Quest, I wanted to say I told you this off the uh, off the air last week, Sean. I am so in love with Dragon Quest XI that I've made the decision I'm going to play the rest of the series. Not like in the next few months. <laughs> That's probably a multi-year-long project. Yeah. But I started collecting the games on Nintendo DS slash 3DS because uh, they've released 4, 5, 6, and 9 were all on the Nintendo DS. 4, 5, 6 were ported. 9 is a DS-only game. And then 7 and 8 over the last couple of years got 3DS uh, remakes. And those carts are all starting to get rare, so I just started, I did a little, like, searching, and I was like, uh, if I put some things together here, I can actually get all of these for pretty cheap, and I'll have them for when I need them. So, you can see here, Sean, in my Nintendo DS case, I have all of Dragon Quest 4 through 9 on Nintendo DS and 3DS, which is nice. Uh, so I can play most of the series that way, which is good. Um, sometimes it can be hard to figure out how to play these games, because they're not on, like, the, they're all on the PS4 in Japan. <laughs> but not in America. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I still don't quite know how I'm going to do one, two, three. But these are ones I was really excited for. And I wanted to tell the listeners what I told you. Uh, four, five, six, I all got from GameStop because GameStop sells, like, retro games now. They're doing this whole push. And I, the DS is retro now, I guess, which makes me feel old. But it, it, that's fair. It is retro. Um, yes, it is an old console. Yes. And that was the cheapest place I could get these. But, like, altogether, they would have cost about 60 bucks, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to drop 60 bucks right now. So I went to the trade-in section, and I found out they would give me $20 for a DualShock 3, the controller for the PlayStation 3, and $25 for the little headset dongle for the Xbox One that added a 3.5mm audio jack for headphones. Neither of which I need anymore, because modern Xbox One controllers just have the jack. I don't use that headset adapter anymore. And I had an extra DualShock 3 that, Sean, you will know, is was mostly broken. Um, I, I know it was mostly broken because that was the one that you left me when you went on, like, a trip or something several years ago. And I left when we were in college in that condo, and you left your PS3 there. I played a bunch of PS3 games, and you... Just gave me your broken DualShock 3 and left the good one at home because you secretly hate me deep inside. I think it was an accident, but yes, I did do that. Uh, this is the DualShock 3 that when The Last of Us originally came out on PS3, yes, The Last of Us was originally a PS3 game. I forget that sometimes too. Uh, there's, Do you know that section in The Last of Us where you're with the, the guy in the town, like Mike or whatever his name is? Uh, Bill. Bill, yeah. You're with Bill, and there's this part where you get cornered in, like, a parking lot outside the church, and there's all these cars, and then all these zombies come in, and you can kind of get on the cars and fight them and stuff. That part was really frustrating for me in 2013, and I, at one point, took my DualShock 3, and I just smacked it on the table a little bit. I didn't throw it. It wasn't even that forceful, but the DualShock 3 you know, is about as sturdy as a piece of tissue paper, so it, like, broke at the bottom and, like... um like the screw fell out and stuff and I had to put it kind of back together, but it never was quite right. It always made this like shaky sound and eventually the rumble just went away entirely. Yeah. Um, six years later, I brought that controller to GameStop. The dude looked at it, put it down, gave me 20 bucks and I rushed out of the store before he could check it anymore. And, uh, I just want to say, you know, I don't feel guilty about it because GameStop's kind of evil, 
But I did get $20, and that paid for uh, at least one of these Dragon Quest games. So that's my fun I mean, story. You, your conscience can also rest safe, Jonathan, in the knowledge that nobody was ever going to ever use a DualShock 3 ever again. It's never yes. going to happen. There's no reason for it. They were terrible controllers then. They are abominations now compared to what the DualShock 4 is. It was like any other controller now. Any other controller then. Any other controller. DualShock 3 is a piece of shit. Your DualShock 3 was just, you know, an extra broken piece of shit. Yep. But yeah, nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to need it. I am mystified that GameStop is even buying DualShock 3s at all, let alone for $20. $20? Can you, I mean, that's... Uh, I would never even think to ask for that on, like, if I were going to sell it on eBay or something, which I wouldn't yeah, do. Yeah, eBay is, like, five bucks max for a, like, pristine DualShock 3. Probably, yeah. So, anyway, I have a lot of Dragon Quest to play, and I'm excited to look at some of these. Um, yeah, so, anyway, that is Dragon Quest Eleven: Echoes of an Elusive Age. It's really good. We'll talk about it more, a, a lot more, <laughs> in the weeks to come. Because I we'll both have to make cheat sheets with the proper nouns in the English and Japanese version, so we know what the fuck we're talking about. I know we haven't even gotten into story stuff yet, really. But uh, yeah, it's so good, guys. You you should fucking play it. Don't sleep on this yeah. one. All right, you want to do some news, Sean? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? All right, we are going to start with the I think most pressing and immediate piece of news that happened this week in the video game world, which is that on Friday, uh, the majority of staff at the uh, game company Telltale Games was laid off. A 25-person shell crew remains. That reflects a 90% uh, minimization of staff. All of their future projects have been canceled, including remaining work on the final season of The Walking Dead, which was their big thing. Uh, it was about to launch its second episode. It's not even clear at this point whether that episode will come out. Uh, the shell crew is working on finishing their Minecraft story mode adaptation for Netflix, which apparently was a contractual thing they had to do. Uh, this is the statement that the company released. They said, Today, Telltale Games makes the, made the difficult decision to begin a majority studio closure following a year marked by insurmountable challenges. A majority of the company's employees were dismissed earlier this morning, with a small group of 25 employees staying on to fulfill the company's obligation to its board and partners. CEO Pete Hawley issued the following statement, It's been an incredibly difficult year for Telltale as we work to set the company on a new course. Unfortunately, we ran out of time trying to get there. We released some of our best content this year and received a tremendous amount of positive feedback, but ultimately that did not translate to sales. With a heavy heart, we watch our friends leave today to spread our brand of storytelling across the games industry. Telltale will issue further comments regarding its product portfolio in the coming weeks. So there are a lot of unanswered questions about what will become of those properties, um, sadly, we know what has happened to most of the staff. They were, uh, they have lost their jobs without severance. The nice thing was to see a lot of other studios in the game industry immediately reaching out to the crews at Telltale and uh, trying to help them get back on their feet. This is obviously a talented group of people, and it is sad to see them out of a job. At the same time, it, I think it is hard to look at what Telltale has been doing over the last six years and for me, at least, find this news particularly surprising. I'll get into what I mean by that in a little bit. But, Sean, what was your reaction to this news? Yeah, I actually was really surprised. Not that Telltale got shut down because I think it's clear, it's been clear for a while that that studio is being very heavily mismanaged. But it was surprising to me in the sense that, like, if Telltale were to shut down, I would have expected it to shut down either last year 
or next year or the year after that, for it to shut down right now in the middle of them releasing The Walking Dead, the final season, which is now like a way more ominous way to refer to that fucking thing, which is kind of a weird, like, you know, twist of fate or whatever. This is something that maybe, you know, the Telltale, the higher-ups at Telltale knew something that, that the people actually making that game did not know, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's really... I was I was sort of taken aback when I saw that news because it also came on the back of a, a studio closure that it wasn't quite as shocking because the studio had been quiet for a long time, which is Capcom Vancouver um, also got shut down. I think it was on Friday, so it was, or like maybe it was Thursday. So a couple of days before this, Capcom Vancouver, which is the studio that made Dead Rising 2, 3, and 4, but not Dead Rising 1, they got shut down, and that's... You know, also sad news. That one was not as shocking to me, just in the sense of like they had no announced projects. We hadn't heard anything of the, from them for like two years. Whenever Dead Rising Four came out, because Dead Rising Four was a fucking video game that came out that that nobody remembers. Um, so that happened, and then a couple of days later, um, part of it was also the way that this news broke out was kind of surprising. Was that I don't know if you saw it from when it started, Jonathan, but it was like. I think it was maybe Gamachutra first broke a story that was like very pending of like we're getting reports that Telltale is shutting down and then there was a lot of other like game reporters trying to confirm this or or like figure out what the fuck was going on. US Gamer like was a good resource to go to that was like consistently updating um, and it was just like a lot of different game journalists all like kind of out in the open on Twitter all being like we've heard they're shutting down we've heard maybe they're not and then it, it took a while for Telltale to for to make an official statement for people to find out what it was exactly happening. And even then it actually took a little while to figure out in the context of that, what's happening. And I still think we still don't quite know what the full fallout of this whole thing was going to be. Um, because at first it seemed like a lot of people were, were suspecting that that shell crew was going to stay around to try to finish off like what work remained on the walking dead, the final season. And then it became clear that that was not the case at all, that all those games are canceled and they are just there because there is some sort of contractual obligation with Netflix. That means that they have to basically be working on it. Or I assume that like the CEO of telltale would get his ass suit. Um, and then there was also just all these other stories about how um, telltale had hired employees like as little as a week before this shutdown happened. And so there are people who like a week ago, picked up their life, moved to fucking San Francisco, which is not an easy city to live in with the cost of living out there, and worked for, like, half a week and then got fucking laid off all of a sudden. Like, like you said, you know, the way that these policies work in America is so heinous that there's, like, no severance, no real support from anything other than, like, the good-naturedness of the game development community, which every time there's a big studio closure, the game development community kind of, like, you know, crowds around and, and, and tries to help people and get everybody settled so at another studio on another project. But yeah, this this shutdown kind of shook me a little bit, just in the sense of like the last thing I had heard about it was um, a the Waypoint Radio episode where Patrick Klepek was playing through The Walking Dead, the final season. And I never liked the Telltale stuff that much. I kind of liked episode two of their first one, and that's the only Telltale game I ever really stuck through was the first Walking Dead season. But Patrick Klepek is a game critic that really enjoyed a lot of the Telltale stuff, and he was so effusive about the quality of the Walking Dead final season episode one. It was like saying that this is the best thing they've made since the first season of The Walking Dead, which was easily their most critically acclaimed hit. So I was in this mood of like, oh, maybe Telltale is turning the shit around. Maybe they like, because that was something very public last year. They had laid off 25% of their employees then. So it's like this 90% that they laid off this time is even smaller than what it would have been. But they kind of downsized last year 
um, to focus on smaller projects and to update their core engine and update like that stuff. And that's part of the reason why they marketed The Walking Dead as the final season was them shifting the company into this new mode to like, you know, focus on smaller projects or like on fewer projects, maybe is the better way to say it, and to update their technology and fix a lot of the, the running problems that plagued those games. That was like the last big messaging that came out from Telltale. And so clearly they are not going managing to go down that path because a year later they are i mean almost like a year to the day because that 25 percent layoff was in november 7th so we're a couple of months away from that having a year from them laying off 25 percent. obviously those moves were not enough to save telltale uh, look telltale as a business i i you just look at the numbers they were by, being run in a way that no company in the course of human history could have been successful running this way period here is a list of games that Telltale made between their breakout with The Walking Dead Season 1 in 2012 and now in 2018. The Walking Dead Season 1, The Walking Dead 400 Days, Poker Night 2, The Wolf Among Us, The Walking Dead Season 2, Tales from the Borderlands, Game of Thrones, Minecraft Story Mode, Minecraft Story Mode Adventure Pass, which was as long as Minecraft Story Mode, The Walking Dead Michonne, Batman Season 1, The Walking Dead A New Frontier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Minecraft Story Mode Season 2, Batman Season 2, The Walking Dead The Final Season. That is 16 games, each of which is a multi-episode project. Uh, I tallied up every platform they were released across. Those 16 games were released across, uh, were released 129 times. If you tally up every platform they were on in the course of these six years, there is just no one studio that can do that much work and unless they are everything is selling at an insane level, they would have the resources they need to grow the way they need to, to treat their employees properly, and to make these things work. And none of that was happening because this was also a, an open secret that had been reported on, which is that working conditions at this studio were utter shit for the people working there. It was around-the-clock crunch. People were uh, miserable um, you know, being overworked and underpaid, and a lot of the people now are never going to get overtime pay that they were promised because the studio just literally went bankrupt one day. Um, you know, this is this is not a studio that was run in any sort of responsible way. And you know, I I have my own thoughts on the quality of the games. I thought they were irredeemably terrible, but. I understand, you know, some people liked some of these. They were certainly darlings in the critical community for a while. But I just, I, I, every once in a while I would check in and be like, oh, right, Telltale is making a new thing. And then I'd learn like, oh, they've made five new things. How the hell is this Jenga tower still standing? And I guess when the final piece got pulled to me, it was like, yeah, that's, you just, you can't run a company that way. It's not how money works. Yeah, it's it because yeah, again, like it has been very clear that Telltale was in trouble for a while, but it is still just like right fucking smack dab in the middle of The Walking Dead, the final season, and and that's you know that's never going to finish. I I will be very curious to see because episode two is done. I'm very curious if that gets released. What that even means, like like. Are these games going to get... Because most of these games are digital only. A couple of them got disc releases. Are these games going to end up getting pulled off of a lot of digital services? Because 
Telltale doesn't exist, is like THQ Nordic, which is a company that has made its name of buying up dead video game company properties like THQ back in like 2012 when THQ originally shut down. Um, are they going to just snatch all this IP stuff up? Although even that's weird because all these projects are other IPs, which is one of the ways that I think Telltale really fucked up was basing everything they have on on other IPs and getting deals that way. And clearly, like, they needed to have fewer projects, I think, build, like, a, a more competent base on which to build all these projects. And I think having made, like, if they had made something that was more identifiably, this is a Telltale game with a Telltale property and stuff that they own, considering Telltale was an independent studio, I think that would have been a much smarter move than having this constant role of fucking... We've got a Walking Dead thing, then Wolf Among Us, then Borderlands, then Game of Thrones, then Minecraft, then Batman, then Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I didn't even fucking remember that they actually made that Guardians of the Galaxy game. It's like they're so buried in all these random IPs that were completely disconnected. It's it's very frustrating because it's like Telltale from... Like, thinking about how far that star has fallen, right? Like, even though I didn't like The Walking Dead Season 1 that much, that was the game that won, like... The I think probably the majority of Game of the Year awards in 2012. It won, I think, like whatever the Spike TV Game Awards. I think it was before we just had the Jeff Keeleys or whatever they are now. Um, but it like won the most like public facing Game of the Year award that year. Um, kind of to everyone's surprise because it's not. It was not a big game. It was made by an independent studio. It was like a weird episodic game based on a like comic book. And I think that was like right around the time the TV show was kind of picking up more. Um, and and it just like so many people loved it and it was like oh adventure games are back and they've evolved and all this stuff and then yeah six years later now it's just like the studio is fucking dead I don't think if you told any of the people who that were you know at the major gaming outlets in 2012 like oh yeah this game that you're giving Game of the Year awards to that studio is going to crash and burn within six years I don't think any of them would have believed it. Well, especially if you told them the way they're going to crash and burn is they're going to undergo the most insane expansion strategy that any company in the video game industry has ever attempted. Again, this was a studio that made a normal number of games for a studio, which was like maybe one a year max, you know, because they had a normal-sized team and a normal development pipeline. And then it it was... you know, and again, it wasn't just they made one game. It was a, games that were segmented into five or six episodes. So they were having dozens of releases. Each one of those releases had at least five platforms attached to it, all the way up to some of these were released across 11 different platforms. So if you had a five-episode thing on 11 different platforms, that's 55 releases that you have to coordinate in one year. And I get not every one of those is the size of a major video game release, but that's still 55 releases. Like, there is no studio that would honestly have the resources if they said, tomorrow, we are now going to make 13 games in the next six years. If Naughty Dog lost their fucking minds tomorrow and decided, you know what? We're going to make 13 episodic Uncharted games between now and 2022. They would also be dead in the water in 2022. Like, I just don't think it's a it's a potentially viable strategy for expansion in any sense. So, like, this is more how, like, people with, like, venture capital expand before they get, you know, like, convicted of fraud at a certain point. And I'm not saying anyone here was guilty of fraud. Just clearly, like, weird mismanagement. It's it's strange to me. And, yes, they, they did have a hell of a star. Because at, I remember, too, in 2012, Walking Dead Season 1 was this huge critical darling. You couldn't open a video game site without reading effusive praise for it. And that definitely continued for a couple of years. There were a couple of years there where, like, 
they were walking like hallowed ground with video game critics, I think it became pretty clear at a certain point that there was a pretty obvious disconnect that critics were enjoying these things and people who bought and played video games were ignoring them. And then at a certain point, critics were ignoring them too. And then like two years later, they shut down, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just kind of at some point felt like they had this weird like shotgun strategy to video game releases of we're going to like get this huge spread of like all these different properties and try to attract people that way because there's fucking nobody on the planet who played all of these games right like yeah. there's no i mean obviously there must be because there are there are maniacs there's like i'm reading every fucking spider-man comic made since 1962 so it's like hey there are some crazy fucking people out there right but still like that's the vast majority of people who bought these games like me bought like one of them or maybe two. Like, maybe you bought Walking Dead and you were, like, an old, like, indie comic book nerd. So you also liked The Wolf Among Us. So you bought that one. Maybe you really liked the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And so you somehow found out that they made that game that never got any advertising that I barely knew existed past its original announcement. And you played that. You know? Or or you're, like, a kid and you played Minecraft. Or you're one of the poor, poor saps who got suckered into playing that fucking Game of Thrones one. Which is the... The Game <laughs> of Thrones one is the one nobody likes. Other Again, I haven't heard anything about that Guardian of the Galaxy one. I have heard, like, from different, different opinions... I've heard somebody defend all of these games from different places. There's, like, people, like, really like a lot of the changes they make to, like, the, like, hallowed Batman um, canon stuff that they do in Batman the Telltale series. And hearing that stuff made me kind of interested in it. Not enough to actually play it. I played, like, 30 minutes of the first episode. It's like, boy, this sure is. It feels, like, exactly like playing The Walking Dead Season 1 was. I'm not going to actually play this. But I will read another article about how cool their take on the Joker was. Um, But, yeah, like... You know, someone played the Batman one and that was it. Or someone played the Minecraft one and that was it. And then everyone who played the Game of Thrones one just fucking threw their hands up and said, fuck this shit, because everyone hated that one. There were still critics who fucking loved that Game of Thrones one. I, I, again, this was the series, this was the company that just like, that one of these, every one of these games, at least one critic would, I feel like, really latch onto it for some reason. That I never got, because I thought... Their engine and style and and visual presentation felt clunky and outdated in 2012, and I never got on board with it. To my knowledge, they never improved that presentation style or substantially overhauled it, right? No, I mean, that was basically the thing they were going to do. I think I think The Walking Dead, the final season, you see some signs of it based on what I heard from that first episode. But, like, that was their whole plan was to be like, okay, we are consolidating more. That's, like, their whole message when they laid off that 25% of people last year in November was we're consolidating and focusing and, like, updating our technology and fixing, like, all the weird bugs. Because, like, one of the things to mention, because you were saying about, like, how impossible a task this was, like, that... Is was not just apparent from a business point of view. If you played any of the games, even The Walking Dead Season 1, it was very apparent that's like they did not have the the means to make these games in a like sort of suitable fashion because the Telltale games are infamous to like industry wide for being incredibly buggy in every facet of the games. You are you know, if you like look for like Batman the Telltale series like bugs or something on YouTube, you will see a bunch of funny videos about like Batman with the animation all broken or like half the character models in the scene haven't loaded or like their faces haven't loaded like that famous Assassin's Creed Unity bug screenshot from years ago like they they all had all those problems i encountered a number of different bugs when i played the walking dead season one um they were infamous for having a bunch of save file bugs which is particularly egregious because the whole thing about the games were we're taking your save file into the subsequent episodes and carrying
having your choices over, but that like like classically just didn't work for a significant enough portion of the audience for it to be a like howl every fucking time a new episode came out. If you were on any video game forum, you would see a handful of threads about like, well, it's fucking broke for me this time, motherfuckers. So yeah, it was just an untenable, unmanageable way to run that studio. And, but it is very frustrating to feel like they were at this pivot point where there is like this alternate future where they figured some of that shit out and maybe they got another CEO and like they, 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 you know, figured out their financial issues and like really worked through that shit and then became the studio that I always wanted Telltale to be and make the games that I felt like they had the potential to that didn't have all the bugs, that didn't have the stiff animation, that didn't have the bland art style because there are storytelling moments and ideas and things in The Walking Dead Season 1 that even 2012 I thought were really awesome. I just thought it never congealed all the way together and I have been waiting for six fucking years like and trying like a little bit here and there whenever like Batman or Borderlands were both on PS Plus. I tried a little bit of both of those games and kind of bounced off of them and was like, oh, like maybe the maybe eventually they will make it. And it's very frustrating to feel like they were saying, we okay, we are finally trying to make that transition, and then for it to die like a quarter of the way through making that transition. Well, all I know is at the very least, there will be a killer Jason Schreer investigative article on this on Kotaku in two to four weeks, and it will be novella length and it will probably be the most interesting thing to come out of Telltale from where I'm sitting. I don't I mean to dance on anyone's grave. I'm sorry. No. And it's important to note also that like the people to be mad at and make fun of in the situation are the upper management and the CEO at Telltale because they're the people that fucked everything up. I'm not making... The developers did nothing wrong. No, the developers did nothing wrong, and I, I hope they all find work, and I hope they all get to put their talents to, frankly, better use uh, is my hope. Yes. On this, because I clearly there was an abundance of talent at that studio. You wouldn't make it that far if there wasn't. Uh, and I hope they are all able to spread their wings and fly, um, and maybe find cheaper lodging outside of San Francisco because that sounds like hell too. I'm fucking. I'm trying to visit San Francisco in October, and it's a fucking nightmare figuring out where to. And my mom lived there for ten years and has a huge network of friends. This is hard. I understand. I get it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, you want to go ahead and move on to Tokyo Game Show news? Let's talk about the Tokyo Game Show. So the Tokyo Game Show has been ongoing. Um, It's a pretty long series of conferences and announcements and things. So I've just been keeping track of announcements that were interesting to me. I'm sure you will have ones to add to this, Sean. But let's go over a couple that I have on the outline, and then we'll hear if you have anything else. First off, at the Tokyo Game Show, Sony confirmed that the PlayStation Vita will officially be ending production in Japan in 2019. So this time next year, the PlayStation Vita will officially be no more. They will not be making it. They will not be shipping it. Um... You know, they haven't said, like, they're turning off the online store or anything, so you can still play your games. But the Vita um, is is now, it has been taken off life support. It is in hospice care. It is waiting to die. And uh, Godspeed, Vita. Pour one out for my bro. I love the Vita. Yes. Great console. And and we will end up talking about you a little bit more, I think, when we talk about some of the later PlayStation news because, boy, the Vita was very good for a certain certain feature and certain old games you could play on it. Yes, um, it was. Yeah, but Vita, I love you. 
I've still got you. I will play you. I'm more I'm actually looking at my Vita right now because it's just sitting on my desk here. Um, I, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to play it more. It's got all these fucking Persona games on it. It's awesome. I love the PlayStation Vita. Uh, you know, the Vita, I think, in history will probably be remembered in some ways as the trial run for the Nintendo Switch, weirdly, you know, in that yeah. the the Vita, I think, pioneered a sort of on-the-go indie game strategy that was not enough to save the Vita but has in part propelled the Nintendo Switch to huge success. Um, And I think a lot of the things the Vita did in attempting to create something like console-quality gaming on the go, which it never quite did but was was a great aspiration and it led to other cool things, I think that will be a significant legacy in the future because I think the Nintendo Switch has clearly taken lessons from it. Um, that is one thing in the industry Nintendo has paid attention to, I feel like, is the PlayStation Vita. Um, and I think uh, it's only going to grow from there. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you and I were both here, you know, on the beaches with the PlayStation Vita on the ground and we can tell people about it one day because I think there's going to be a day when it's almost like Maybe like the Dreamcast or something. And people have like a, an yeah. outsized love for what it actually was, but that love uh, is probably still earned. That is literally my exact thought, is that the PlayStation Vita is our generation's Dreamcast. To what, like, obviously, like, we were both alive when the Dreamcast was a thing, and I had a friend who had a Dreamcast, and I would go over to his house and use him so I could play Sonic Adventure. Um, <laughs> but, like, this is, like, us, like, being of age and buying a PlayStation Vita, and you fucking convincing me just by me seeing you play Persona 4 the Golden, and being like, well, fuck, now I have to play this thing, um, and get this fucking very expensive handheld console, and then I fell in love, and I... I learned a lot of Japanese by playing weird fucking Japanese visual novels like Danganronpa on that thing. So if you like Japanese visual novels, fucking the Vita is a real good place to go to. So that's that's a recommendation. Japanese visual novels, Japanese RPGs, j- Japanese anything. They, the Japanese put a lot on the Vita. They really liked it. Yeah, so it's so it is both like the Sega Dreamcast, in which it is like this interesting half step console that like presages the like what was for the Dreamcast going to be the the, the PlayStation Two for us, and, and and now is the Switch. It's also a lot like the Sega Saturn, which in the sense that if you like know like talk to anybody or see any stuff from Japan talking about it, they're like fucking yeah, the Vita is awesome. It's got all this great shit, and everybody in the West is like Vita, what's a Vita? In the same way that like I've never met a single person who has ever seen or played or touched or knows anything about a Sega Saturn and when I got into watching like interesting Japanese like YouTube videos and game shows video game shows and stuff on TV um, it was like oh man the Sega Saturn had a lot of cool shit in Japan it just never came out of here yep Uh, yeah the Vita we you know maybe one day we'll do a fuller retrospective although I think this podcast is in its being a a Vita retrospective because this podcast started in 2012 we both bought Vitas in 2013. We've talked about it a lot over the years. Uh, you know, I remember like downloading PlayStation Vita wallpapers in 2013 and loading them on the system because I was like, that was not a thing in like game systems at the time, like custom wallpapers. So I was like, this is cool. I'm gonna have a bunch of Persona ones. Um, and uh, you know, there were all the Persona games we got, and I played all of those. I actually have not gone back and played Persona One and Two. I have to do that at some point. Um, but you know, three, four, and the dancing games, and I, uh, you know, played some Final Fantasy games on there, and a lot of indie games over the years. And you know, it was it was a great little buddy. It's a system so nice. I did buy it twice. 
uh, so right, I could yeah. have the, the slim edition. And then I gave my old one to my brother, who promptly broke it and then had to send it in for repairs and did get it repaired. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting little system, and it will be fondly remembered at least by this little podcast. I really want to go back and listen to what like the first episode recorded after I got my Vita be forever ago, and I talk about playing Call of Duty Black Ops Declassified, <laughs> which was the game that came with my Vita, that lived with my Vita for about five minutes, and I play it. It's like, it is to this day, I mean, I, because I say that Sonic the Hedgehog 2006 is the worst game i played because it's easily the worst game I've beaten. Call of Duty Black Ops Declassified is awesome, probably the worst game I've played because, like, fuck it, that game was utter fucking trash. So if you want to, like, relive some podcast memories, go dig in the archives for that one because that was fun. Oh, uh, Sean, I have something to tell you. I lost your copy of Call of Duty Black Ops Declassified. You lent it to me at one point. I don't know where it is anymore. I've moved twice since then. I, I wasn't hiding it from you. I don't think you're going to be upset. I do not have it anymore. Jonathan, I only have one thing to say to you in response to that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. All right. Let's move on. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 got a new trailer at the Tokyo Game Show, and I think I just need to try to find the text conversation I had with my brother about this trailer, because this has continued the trend of, I have no fucking idea what is going on in Kingdom Hearts 3 trailers. I have zero context other than I know some of the Disney movies. Other than that, zero context, I am utterly baffled by these trailers and i also think they're kind of fucking amazing and i really want to play it and it is just the weirdest sensation i don't get it so let me see if i can find this so this trailer was the one i'm vamping here that introduced the big hero six characters because um uh they just they keep you run out of disney properties eventually right you need to like just be like Likely in the interim between Kingdom Hearts 2 and Kingdom Hearts 3, there have been a lot of new Disney properties that they can mine. Because if there weren't, they'd be out of shit to yeah. do. Uh, here's, here's a little stat for you, Sean. When Kingdom Hearts 2 came out, Disney had never made a CGI movie. Pixar had. Disney Fuck. had. That's how far back Kingdom Hearts 2 is. Anyway, um, yes, they have a lot of properties. Big Hero 6 is in there now. It looks fucking awesome. But anyway, here's the text conversation. Thomas, did you see that new Kingdom Hearts trailer? Oh man, it looks so good. And I say, no. And he says, yeah. And I say, is the, oh, no, there's, these are out of order. I said, is this the Big Hero 6 trailer? And he says, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm watching it now. And then I said a couple minutes later, holy fuck, I love Japanese Mickey, which is true. This is the thing. This is a Tokyo Game Show trailer, so it's all in Japanese. Japanese Mickey is one of the greatest voices I've ever heard. And I, I don't know if Japan has gone back and, like, dubbed Steamboat Willie and stuff, but I hope they have because that would be amazing to see. I'm going to have to look that up at some point. And then Thomas is like, also Japanese Davy Jones. And then I said, motherfucker, I'm going to have to play this crazy amazing looking game, aren't I? And he said, yeah, you are. And I said, if you can play this thing in Japanese in America, I'm 100% there. And then Thomas said, all the main English voices are fine. It's just all the Disney characters who suck other than Donald and Goofy. And I'm think I did not text this, but I'm thinking to myself, that has to be most of the voices in the game, right? But anyway, yeah. I said, yeah. yeah, but I don't want fine. I want those sweet-ass Japanese performances. Anyway, we've been texting back and forth about it ever since because Thomas is currently catching up on the Kingdom Hearts games he hasn't played, which he's played most of them, but there are a lot. Uh, we were talking about this the other day. Kingdom Hearts 3 is such a weird misnomer of a name because this is in no way, shape, or form the, kingdom, the third Kingdom Hearts game. Like, 
Thomas was even telling me, like, most of the plot stuff in these trailers for Kingdom Hearts 3 is referring way more to the spin-offs and, and handheld games in the last ten years than it is to anything from Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2. Like, he said it looks much more like a sequel to 358 Days Over 2 or Birth by Sleep or Dream Drop Distance, um, which are all games that came out. So, I don't know, but I do think I have... I will just tell the podcast audience now... I have decided I'm going to play Kingdom Hearts 3, and I'm not going to make any effort whatsoever to catch up on the series. I'm not going to play the other 1,200 games. I'm not going to try to watch a bunch of YouTube videos, because frankly, either way, there just is not enough time between now and January for me to do that sufficiently. And I think it will make for a much more entertaining podcast come January if the dynamic is now... I, an utter newbie, am playing Kingdom Hearts 3 and trying to describe the plot to you, a newbie who knows even less about the series, and we try to figure it out together, and I'm looking forward to that. Jonathan, should I play Kingdom Hearts 3 in Japanese? Should I get Should I get the Japanese version of Kingdom Hearts yes. 3 and play it? Yes. Yes, you should. Fuck. Fuck. Shit. Or, I mean, why don't we hold off and hear if it's going to have dual mm-hmm. audio, because that could resolve a lot of things. But there's also something about the idea of, like, all the ridiculous fucking katakana names that game has got to have with, like... Because it's already ridiculous in fucking yeah. English. It's got to be just absurd looking. Oh, fuck. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I, I am not committing to anything. But when you're talking about... Because I have seen a lot of the Japanese trailers, and I, I watched this one. And, yeah, you are right. Like, all the Disney characters in Japanese, not only are they really good performances... It hits the sweet spot for me with a lot of this stuff. Like, one of the reasons why I learned Japanese at some point is I'm so fascinated of... I think it's one of the reasons why I dra- like Dragon Quest so much. I'm so fascinated about the West from the Japanese point of view, which you can only get if you know Japanese. And so it's like, it's one of the reasons why I really like watching Let's Plays of Western games... Japanese Let's Plays of Western games. I don't usually watch, like, them all the way through, but, like, I'll click around... And I did that with Spider-Man a couple of days ago. It was just, like, typed in Spider-Man in Japanese into YouTube and just, like, clicked a bunch of different videos and just watched bits and pieces of that game with Japanese commentary and the Japanese voice acting. It's so fascinating to me. And the Disney voice acting hits that button of, like, this is something very familiar to me and I'm, like, you know, that like, lived with something like Mickey my entire life and know it so much from my point of view. And it is endlessly amusing and fascinating and incredible to me to see it from that very different perspective. So there is a possibility... And if that game is not fucking like $90 to get the Japanese version, I will maybe do that at some point. I think that would be very fun. Uh, I will say, like, getting a little more sober with it, the other reason I, I, when I, like, analyze myself on this, why I think I'm excited for this game is that, again, the first two, the big Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 games, when those came out, they were drawing from a pool of Disney stuff that I frankly don't give a shit about, like... I like some classical Disney movies, and I usually like them for the art style, not for anything to do with story, characters, or performances, you know? Like, I think Sleeping Beauty is an amazing film because of its visuals, not necessarily because it is a great piece of storytelling. I don't think it is, Um, you know? And I think that about a lot of older Disney stuff. I am not a fan of the 90s Disney movies. I know there's a generation who think Beauty and the Beast is the best thing ever made, and it's not. It's okay. That's it. I will go to bat for the Lion King, and that is it. The Lion King. I like the Lion King. The Lion King has a great first half. I will. I will go to bat for the first that, half of the I, Lion King. You are right. I should have been more specific. 
Yes. It has also been a long time since I saw The Lion King. There are, definitely right there are just no sacred cows for me with older Disney stuff, unless you're doing, like, Fantasia or the Silly Symphonies or the shorts. I like all of the stuff that, like, academics like with Disney. I'm very traditional in that way. But I'm just not into the other stuff. This game is drawing, like, it seems like primarily from Disney 2005 onwards since Kingdom Hearts 2 came out. And honestly, that's the period of Disney I enjoy most. Is like, I think their CGI films, like, since, I know this is a sketchy subject because of who it is, but since John Lasseter took over Disney, I think the the turn they made was, was really, really strong. Um, you know, I obviously think Pixar has made a ton of interesting stuff that I love. And this game is primarily drawing, it seems like, on Pixar worlds and on things like Wreck-It Ralph and um, uh, Big Hero 6, and I don't love this movie, but Frozen, like, the more recent stuff that, frankly, kind of matters more to me and things I would like to play a video game of, and because of the CGI art style, translates better into a video game. So all of that looks really interesting, and it, and it seems like Tetsuya Nomura and company have a really cool intuition of how to turn that stuff into a video game. So... Like, it kind of means, like, for the first time, the, like, draw of this crossover thing that Kingdom Hearts is kind of entices me more than it has in the past. You know? Yeah, no. I, I definitely agree. Because, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of really any era of Disney. But, like, I am, even, like, not even seeing stuff like Wreck-It Ralph, I am more interested in them, like, mining that stuff. And it's just because, it, like, it still feels new and fresh. It feels yeah. like I've been living with people with, like, you know, the merchandising of Beauty and the Beast since I was, like, a, like, sapient person, right? So... It came out like, the year I, before you I, were I, born, so yes, you okay, have been. Okay, yes, yeah. So it's, like, it's just been that nonstop my entire life, and I've never been that interested in that stuff. Again, other than, as you have said, the first half of The Lion King or the first level of The Lion King game on Sega Genesis. Because once you get to the second level, that's just bullshit. There's an ostrich part. It's terrible. I hate that part. But the first level is really good. So that's like that's my like that's my sweet spot for Disney. If if they made a Kingdom Hearts four that only pulled from the first half of the Lion King and the first level of the Lion King from Sega Genesis, I'd be golden and I'd get that game immediately. Well, now we know um, what our podcast if, topic for next week is. Yes, but if you know, since they're not going to do that, I'm more interested in them mining the newer stuff that I have not seen be beaten to like death by capitalism yet. Yes, it will be, but not yet. Oh, it will be, yes, yeah. but but it's not yet. So it's something that's still fresh in you. I can see, you know, blood still pouring out of the fucking corpses right now instead of it just being a desiccated skeleton like it is for the 90s movies. Yeah. So I don't want to stay on Kingdom Hearts forever, but I do have one more question, Sean. They are okay. st- This game is coming out in two months. They are or three or four months. They are still actively revealing new worlds from very recent Disney movies. What's the over-under on this thing having Star Wars in it? Oh... Yeah. I mean, I saw a headline coming out of TGS of, like, one of the producers or someone for the game saying that there are more than ten worlds in the game, which is like, that's a lot of fucking Disney properties to go to. I, I, like, my heart says it should be in there, and it would be fucking the most amazing thing ever if they put Star Wars into Kingdom Hearts. My brain says there's no possible way that that happened. I just refuse to believe it. The only... The only thing holding me back from making that prediction firmly is that this game has been in development for a very long time. Um, Big Hero 6 and Frozen are on the more recent side, but that's like 2014, 2015. Like, Disney's Star Wars, I guess, started in 2015. You could do it. That would be awfully recent for it to make it in here. But I also really want 
you know, Kylo Ren's likeness in this thing, and, like, Donald Duck and Goofy, like, hanging out with Kylo Ren, hopefully shirtless like he is in The Last Jedi, it would, I would laugh so hard. I mean, it's more possible than I was initially giving credit for because Pirates of the Caribbean is in there, and that's also live action. So well, that like, was already the live in live action things too. Was that? That's, yeah, that's always fuck, been in man, there. That's how old those movies yeah. are. That they were in. For some reason, Kingdom Hearts Two is older than Pirates of the Caribbean in my memory. Yeah, but yeah, so like live action is not not out of bounds. I just feel like I think the the. I feel like if they're going to do Star Wars, we would know because it would. If you were going to put Star Wars in this game, it would have to be such a big part just because of how huge Star Wars is. I think it would like suck the air out of that game unless you built the game kind of around Star Wars, and that's that's my main reasoning for why it wouldn't be in there. Yeah, well, we shall see. Um, if not in this one, maybe in Kingdom Hearts Four in the year twenty fifty five. I mean, yeah. Well, no, by then, like Star Wars will be so old and dead and passe. Like maybe okay. they'll like have like a reference to solo a star wars story in like a wink wink nudge nudge kind of way but other than that we'll have forgotten star wars you know and we won't uh, we won't have video games anymore because we'll have like devolved into cannibals by that point okay uh let's see another trailer i really liked is uh one piece is getting a really big new like open world game called one piece world seeker and it got a bit it's been unveiled before but it got a big trailer at the tokyo game show i had not heard of the game before it's they're taking the the mentality behind this game is very much like the One Piece movies where it's an original story suggested by Ichiro Oda who writes the manga uh, and then developed by the team and it's got all the characters in there but in a new like standalone side story and I'm not like the biggest One Piece fan in the world I've read a good amount of the manga and I wish I had the time in life to read more but I believe at my last check that series is up to 90 volumes of the fucking manga and is coming up on 900 episodes of television so I just I don't know if I can be caught up on it but that game looked really fucking good and it was an impressive trailer so I just wanted to give it a shout out cuz it looked like uh above par for one of these like standalone Shonen Jump games, um, and I've I've like heard over the last couple of years that the One Piece games have been getting pretty good, but that one looked interesting to me. Cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Speaking of Shonen Jump stuff, Jump Force, the game that was announced at Microsoft Stage this year at E3, which is the newest Shonen Jump crossover fighting game, has been getting a bunch of new details all over uh, Tokyo Game Show Week. The one that was most interesting to me is that Yugi has been added to the roster from Yu-Gi-Oh. Uh, everyone said it was Yugi Muto. Really, it's it's the Yu-Gi-Oh character. It's clearly like Dark Yugi in the game. Right. So that is not Yugi Muto. That's the Pharaoh whose name is Atem. But that's okay. I get it. Not everyone knows that stuff. But he's going to be in the game. Also, and most exciting for me, Akira Toriyama himself has designed four brand new characters who will be involved in the main story. Glover, the director of the J-Force. Navigator, the assistant navigator. Galena, the villain, and Kane, the other villain. And they are very cool character designs. And I love that apparently Akira Toriyama just can't stop designing shit now. Like, after Dragon Ball ended, he spent like a decade or so, like, working on Dragon Quest, doing small one-off manga projects, but mostly just keeping it, like, low. And over the last couple years, he's just, like... He can't stop making stuff through Dragon Ball and Dragon Quest, and he's designing for every other fucking video game that asks him to, and I love it. There's an Akira Toriyama renaissance going on. Yeah. I do have to say that the design for uh, Galena, 
the the villain is just the evil lady from Dragon Ball's universe. Like it's just oh. I think her name is Toa or Mirai, like one of those two. Yeah. It is like it is almost the exact same character design. Well, so, that's you know, at some that's how Toriyama you know, rolls sometimes. Yeah, but it's yeah, I yeah, it's that game still looks kind of weird to me. I'm not like super excited for it. They did also announce not that this would be something that you would not expect to be there, but but Yu Yu Hakusho stuff is in there. So I yeah. don't like Yu Yu Hakusho. You can play as Yusuke. You can fight Togoro, and that's cool. Yes. But yeah. This this is I'm, the same. I'm curious to see what that game will be like. Yeah, I mean, this is the same team that did J Stars a couple years ago, and we both liked J Stars. I think I liked it. Um, yeah, I liked it. Um, so you know, this could be a cool building on it. It has. I will say one thing that interested me in it is that it does have, I think, a more like. Uh, experimental roster like it feels like they're pulling from more kinds of characters who wouldn't normally be in fighting games so that could be cool I like that it's got original Toriyama characters um, it'll you know be coming out in the west from the beginning I think it took a couple of years for J-Stars to come over so we shall see but it was interesting anything else happened at the Tokyo Game Show that is notable to you? Nothing huge. I mean, we talked about the stuff that happened the first night um, on last episode, and you know, they they, had, they announced a new Samurai Showdown game, which is cool. Um, and then the big thing is Judge Eye's Shinigami no Yuigun, um, which is the new uh, Yakuza Studio game, and that game is fucking looks awesome. Other than that, there hasn't been a lot of stuff that stood out to me. Um, one announcement that I thought was kind of cool is the Phoenix Wright games are being ported to kind of everything, so they're being ported to the PC, PS4, Switch, and Xbox One. Um, I have never played any of those games, and they like get really good reviews, and people really love them. Um, but they've always been on handheld systems up till now, so I think it's just cool that those are like kind of getting off of handheld platforms and going to other places. And so I might end up checking those games out at some point. Um, this is also we we got confirmed. This is something we've known since Dragon Ball Fighters was released, but we finally have like confirmed the trailer for Android 17. So all the decent DLC characters for the first season of DLC for Dragon Ball Fighters is out there. Android 17 actually looks pretty cool. I like a lot of the more sort of um, agile characters in that game, kind of like Vegito, that have cool different kind of movement abilities and can kind of push characters around. And Android 17 in that trailer is flipping the fuck out and like bouncing off of walls and all this shit. So that seems pretty cool. He's also wearing his outfit from Dragon Ball Super in that trailer, which I think is other than the um, Super Saiyan Blue stuff and Zamasu, and I guess the, and like Goku Black, which is related to that. But the, um, the the Android 17 Super costume comes from the Tournament of Power uh, arc in in Dragon Ball Super, which is the last like giant arc at the end of that anime so far. So that's cool that they're like kind of starting to to poke their toes into that area and if they make another season of dlc or whatever they do whether it's fighters 2 another season whether it's like a fighters ex edition or something i hope that that means that they will then start pulling um some of the the villain characters and stuff from that arc because there are some really cool characters you can pull from there all right that's all cool uh so yeah it's been an interesting tokyo game show so far lots of good little announcements and yeah anything else you want to say about that I like Tokyo Game Show. I like Japanese games. I want to play Judge Eyes. Awesome. All right. Let's have that game come out. So before we move on with other video game news, before we head back to the West and the rest of the world, why don't we take a quick break and talk about movie and TV news? I'm moving this up in the outline just for variety's okay. sake. Ooh. Ooh, I have to scroll further down than I normally would have. All right. Just so bold. Trailers. Doctor Who got another trailer for Series 11. It was really good. It had a good pop song. And at the end, the doctor does this, like, little, like, kiss gesture and then, like, walks away, like, fuck you guys, like, dropping the mic. And yeah. Jodie Whittaker could not look more awesome in this role if she tried. And I am so 
I have to, like, actively force myself to stop thinking about Doctor Who at this point, Sean. And then they release more trailers, and I'm like, I just want to go into a coma until October 7th. I just, I need this fucking show. I'm so excited. Yeah. There's something about this trailer in particular that made it, and I think maybe it's because we're getting really close and now, and there was, like, a bit more footage that just, like, it feels real to me in a way that the other trailers don't. Like, because the other trailers are just like, ah, it's, it's off in the distance. And now that we know the date and everything... And we can, we're planning for it. It's like, okay, yeah, it's actually fucking happening. And I think it is interesting that we still have not seen the TARDIS yet. Like, yep. they have still, that's still not in that trailer. But there is a giant fucking spaceship. And, and that seems like the doctor is maybe piloting. I don't know if that's just one episode, but the idea of, you know, don't want to like go weird with like too much speculation, but like the idea of like, oh, we're trying to rebuild the TARDIS, but that doesn't mean we're stuck on Earth because this trailer very clearly, they're not just on Earth like the other trailers kind of felt like. Um, if it's the Doctor repairing the TARDIS, but she also has this giant fuck off spaceship and just flying around the galaxy that way and like an old Cadillac compared to the TARDIS, I am down for a season of that. Oh, I'm totally down for it. And the fact that we still haven't even seen the exterior of the TARDIS is what's making me think it's going to be absent for at least a series of episodes because I feel like we would... Obviously, they're not going to show us the new interior until the episode, but the TARDIS exterior is the TARDIS exterior. It it never changes that much. You know, um, at the back end, when Matt Smith... Like, the last time there was a huge showrunner turnover, uh, the, the TARDIS exterior was in all the Matt Smith ads. So, like... That's usually not something they hide, so I'm thinking maybe it's just not there in the footage much. But who knows? Maybe we're getting into speculation. I just I can't. I'm I'm actively stressed out thinking about like how long our podcast on October eighth is going to be dissecting the biggest first episode Doctor Who has had in years. You know, like literally since this podcast started, because the eleventh hour is pre the Weekly Stuff podcast. Yeah, is the last time we had a turnover this big. I'm just glad that, like, we got all the Spider-Man stuff done yes. before before Doctor Who came out. Because if Doctor Who started right when, around when Spider-Man was coming out and we're doing the Sam Raimi movies and everything, we would have, like, very immediately broken our rule of no more four-hour-long podcasts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we would. Or we would have had a five-podcast week, which at a certain point is just disingenuous, you know. Yeah. We do cheat that rule sometimes. Yeah. Um yeah. All right. Doctor Who is cool. Uh, Captain Marvel got its first trailer. This is the next Marvel Studios movie. It's coming out, I th- believe, in March. So before Avengers for the end of the Avengers or whatever they're going to call it. And yeah, uh, Captain Marvel is an exciting thing. We've been waiting to see some from. This is much more of a teaser than it is a trailer. We don't yeah. see much. But we do see that Brie Larson is cool and has an awesome costume. And we also see that in a very ambitious move... Not only is Samuel L. Jackson in this entire movie as Nick Fury, they've de-aged that motherfucker for the whole movie. What the hell? That and and it looks yeah. good. It doesn't it, like it looks less uncanny than the other de-agings, which already were pretty good. Um, I'm I'm impressed by by the balls on that move of just like yeah, fuck it, we're just going to de-age Samuel L. Jackson by thirty years for an entire movie. What could go wrong? Yeah, I do love him looking basically like Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson. He's like sort of the general era they're, they're, they're pulling from for that, and that's very cool. Um, I also just love, again, like you said, it's a teaser, so there's not a lot of like a lot of pitching for like the full plot of the movie and stuff, but you just get little hints of 
the what they're doing with the character and Captain Marvel is not a character slash like Miss Marvel slash Captain Marvel, the Carol Danvers character is not a character I have a huge amount of familiarity with. I did very recently end up reading her first issue because the original pitch for that character was to actually have her be like crossover with Spider-Man supporting cast because she worked at the Daily Bugle on a like female magazine at the Daily Bugle, like in that like whole building. And so she was friends with Mary Jane Watson and all this stuff. You kind of have to read her Miss Marvel number one to get that stuff. And her whole deal in that issue that I had no idea about was that, like, her human... It was almost like a weird, like, superhero version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where her human half did not know that there was this, like, other half that was going around being a superhero. And it was, like, a really interesting dynamic. And I like that in this trailer. I don't know if they're doing that specifically. But they're clearly leaning into the big, ridiculous alien bullshit, which is where Captain Marvel stuff comes from. Like, the original Captain Marvel... Before, like, Miss Marvel, like, the Marvel Captain Marvel, it was Captain Marvel, who was an alien sent to Earth to destroy Earth that decided, I'm not going to destroy Earth, I'm going to protect Earth. So it's, like, full-on, like, alien bullshit, mystical, That's cosmic just the plot of Dragon stuff. Ball. It is, it's, you know, it predates Dragon Ball by, like, 20 years also. So maybe Toriyama. Huh. Hmm. I don't. Maybe, hmm, where, I wonder where he got that from. He got it from yeah. Superman. Like, like, I think pretty literally, <laughs> yes. I think he would tell you yes. he got it from Superman and tweaked it a little bit. I don't think he's shy about and, that. And that little tweak he got was from Captain Marvel. So, hmm, think about okay. that for a second. But yeah, no. Um, yeah, I'm just I, I'm I'm happy to see them not shying away from it. Not that I really expect Marvel Studios to shy away from that stuff because they have been gung ho about like let's just get into the weird bullshit for a while now. But you know, there's always an opportunity when you're doing a new superhero character to say like, ah, oh, let's back off of some of the weirder parts. And they are clearly not doing that with this one. Yeah. I uh, I am curious how the Samuel L. Jackson thing is going to work in an entire movie because again, like uh, it looks good in the trailer. I uh, who knows over the course of a two hour film if that will consistently feel like like you're looking at a real person. It's it's a high bar to clear. Um, this does look like the best CGI work they've had, but again, you're basically going to have a part CGI character. Um, you know, walking around the movie and it's a part CGI character of an actor we know very, very, very well from 30 years of film. So we'll see. Um, but it's, you know, he's got the voice. That's what really matters with Samuel L. Jackson. Yep. Um, Brie Larson looks great. I agree with what you said. The story seems kind of interesting. And I also love that, you know, the story is clearly leading into the Krulls, the whole thing of like aliens who look like people or something. I did not yeah. know what Krulls were before this week. I really hadn't heard of it. Skrulls. Krull? What? Skrull. Krull is something different. They're Skrulls. Okay, sorry. fight the Kree. We have to be very specific here, Jonathan. Okay. The weird alien people. The Skrulls. Am I saying it right yes. now? Okay. Thank you. Yes. And there's a moment in the trailer where she punches out an old woman. And clearly, if you're in the know, that's supposed to be a Skrull. But for the vast majority of people who will be seeing this trailer, there is a very strange non sequitur in which Brie Larson punches out a grandma. And I like that Marvel just decided to keep that in and be like, fuck it, someone in the theater will tell them. I, I think you're making a lot of assumptions there. Maybe that's just what Captain Marvel does. Maybe she fights aliens and the elderly, you know? It's <laughs> like we can't – it's like she knows in the future. It's like the aging workforce, we're not – like the young people are not going to be able to support you. And it's like the only way to solve this is just by punching out all those old fuckers. She is a radical conservative fighter. She just – she knows what needs to be done, Jonathan. That's all. All right. Let's see. Moving over to uh, the increasingly convoluted saga 
of Eon making another James Bond movie, which doesn't seem like it should be that hard. They have done it 24 times before, and the last two both made a billion dollars. But if you have not been following the saga up till now, uh, Bond 25, the next James Bond movie, has been in development hell for a couple of years. Spectre made a lot of money, but was a fucking creative disaster of a movie and did everything wrong. I, I don't know... They, they did everything wrong. It had some nice photography. Story-wise, it did. Literally, there was nothing it did that it did not do wrong. And so I think they've been reeling from that and trying to figure out where to take the series next. Uh, there was off and on whether Daniel Craig was going to come back. He finally decided, okay, I'll come back for one more movie and we'll finish up my James Bond. And then they got Danny Boyle on board to direct. Danny Boyle, the director of 28 Days Later and Sunshine and Slumdog Millionaire and things like that. So pretty prestigious British director to direct the movie. And then a couple weeks ago, Danny Boyle said, this isn't working and so I'm leaving. And I think at that point we were all thinking, I don't know if this thing's ever going to happen, especially with Daniel Craig. But they instead went, fuck you, Danny Boyle. We're going to find an even better director. And this week they officially announced that Kerry Fukunaga is going to be directing the 25th James Bond film. Um, if you don't know who he is, he has made a number – you know, he's young. He's made a number of really interesting things, though. Uh, his film debut was the Jane Eyre adaptation from the early 2000s with Mia Wasikowska and Michael Fassbender. Fucking phenomenal movie. Maybe the best modern adaptation of, a, of like, a Victorian novel I've ever seen. Have you seen that one, Sean? Yes. Yes, I have. I, I saw it when I was doing – I. Big Jane Eyre thing a yeah. couple of years ago when I was at Boulder. It's a good movie. It's a, yeah. such a good movie. Uh, he did Beasts of No Nation a couple of years ago with future James Bond Idris Elba, according to Twitter, um, which is a is a great movie as well. It's on Netflix. Uh, he did the first season of True Detective. He directed that whole thing. And the writer of the show, uh, Nick Pizzolatto, did not like him and fired him. And then True Detective Season 2 was really bad. And now everyone thinks, yeah, Kerry Fukunaga was probably the reason True Detective Season 1 was really good. And this weekend, his newest TV show, Maniac, on Netflix, which I have not watched yet, but I am excited to take a look at, starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone, also came out to pretty rave reviews. Uh, and he again directed the whole season. So Kerry Fukunaga, honestly, might be the most talented filmmaker to ever direct a James Bond movie because this is... This is the furthest into like art house territory they've ever gotten with a Bond director, I would say. Maybe Mark Forster on Quantum of Solace, but I think Mark Forster has has pretty consistently been an emperor has no clothes situation as a filmmaker since then, so maybe not. Um you know, there was uh, Sam Mendes did Skyfall. Sam Mendes is an interesting director, but you know, makes films pretty infrequently, so it's hard to say who he is as a filmmaker, and then Spectre sucked. Um, so, yeah, uh, Kerry Fukunaga, really interesting director. I'm fascinated by that choice. The thing is, the movie is still going to be written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, and if you don't know those guys, they have written every single James Bond movie since Tomorrow Never Dies, which is the second Pierce Brosnan film. That is over 20 years of James Bond now. That has been This has been the primary writing team. There have been other writers who have like done rewrites and stuff, and I don't know how to feel about these guys at this point because Casino Royale is credited to them and it's as good as a James Bond movie will ever be. Spectre is also credited to them. Uh, Die Another Day is also credited to them. But Skyfall is all, like, it's completely, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, the film is now scheduled for a February 14th, 2020 release, which would make this the longest gap between James Bond films ever. Um, and the longest gap since... License to Kill, which is the final film with Timothy Dalton, to Goldeneye, the first Pierce Brosnan film. And that gap occurred in part because the Soviet Union fell. 
and they had to recast the part and figure out who James Bond is in a post-Soviet Union world. So clearly they're having a buttload of trouble getting this movie out, and I'm curious if Kerry Fukunaga can effectively steer this ship. But again, James Bond is a producer-down model, not a director-up model. Um, so I'm very curious how this goes. But they have at least chosen a very good director. And in the year 2020, I look forward to seeing what the fuck this movie is. If if it gets made. If it gets made, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Daniel Craig, it's how... God, I'd have to look this up. He might be in his 60s by then. Like, he's he's up there, you know, in age. He's... Yeah. He will easily have played James Bond longer than anybody else if this comes out. Um, he will have been in the role longer. He's actually been in the role longer than anyone else right now. Um, he's made less movies than Roger Moore and Sean Connery, but he has been James Bond longer. So it's just the series is in a weird place. That's probably a discussion for another day. I've talked about like Spectre and how just thoroughly they screwed a good thing with that. But yeah, that's a weird thing going on in movies right now. I predict that at some point they will make another James Bond movie. I'm just not convinced that this will be the James Bond movie yes. that will be next. Oh, of course. There will be many more James Bond movies in the future. I just, clearly they're having trouble with this one. And I think, you know, hopefully it gets made. I would like to see Daniel Craig do it one more time. And I would like him to go out on a movie that is not Spectre because that is so bad. To be fair, every James Bond other than the guy who did it once has gone out on a bad James Bond movie. There is no James Bond before Daniel Craig who has gone out on a good James Bond movie. It's just never happened. And in fact, most James Bonds, their worst movie is their last movie. Even Timothy Dalton only had two. His second one is the bad one. So, although if you haven't seen it, License to Kill is the one where they just decided to do a Miami Vice episode for a James Bond movie, and it ends with him dousing a guy in gasoline and then lighting him on fire. So it's very entertaining, just, you know, not in a, this is a really good movie way. Cool. Yeah, anyway. All right, deep breath. Let's get back into video game news, Sean. Yeah, if we came up a little bit, surfaced to talk about movie and TV. Now it's to dive back deep into the depths of the video game news because a lot of shit happened around video games this week. The Nintendo Switch online service, long promised, long feared by people on Twitter and Reddit, has finally launched this week on September 18th. It launched as scheduled, although pretty late in the day. Uh, but they did the Switch 6.0 firmware update. Apparently no one has told Nintendo you can do like 1.2, 1.3, because they've just gone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and they've made no substantial changes to the UI, so they are already on version 6, and it looks exactly the same as it did on launch day. I mean, that's how old school Nintendo is and how little they know about how the internet works, is they think that point oh thing is like, it's like, you know... Take, putting your pinky out when you're like drinking a glass of wine. It's just like polite to put a point oh at the end of your version numbers. They don't realize what decimals are. Like if they went at this rate, they'd be on version twelve point oh, which is not a thing in uh in eighteen months. So I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, version six point oh launched, and with that, online service, except for Fortnite, is now walled off. So if you want to play Splatoon or Mario Kart online, you gotta buy an online uh, service pass. I went ahead and bought that night one just to check it out. It's $20 for a year. So I paid my 20 bucks, and I it, it went, launched completely smoothly. There were no problems. It went out just fine. I played a Splatoon 2 match that night, and it actually was just as fast as ever. So there did not seem to be a huge impact on, like, 
game lobby creation and things like that, and I have not heard about any negative impact on player bases. Uh, it apparently, I mean, it was the best-selling game on Amazon of the month of September was the Nintendo Switch Online Pass, apparently. So, um, at least on digital releases. So a lot of people were buying it. Um, the big, I, I guess, thing that people were, have been talking about is that they have this NES service with it, the Nintendo Entertainment System for Switch Online. And I have been playing around with that because uh, I am now on World 4 of Super Mario Bros. 3. That's what I've been playing when I'm not playing Dragon Quest. It's a great game. There's nothing new yeah. with it here. It's still great. It's not, it's the only like you know system I have set up on my TV that can play Mario Three, so that's nice, and it's really good. Uh, it's a nice little service. It's laid out very much like a streaming service or something where you have your 20 games there and you can just pick them and go in. Uh, none of it is streaming, I should say. It's all downloaded. It's only like a 50 meg- megabyte download. All 20 games are there. You can. This is kind of interesting. You can actually rearrange the whole screen. So if you want Mario at the top, you can do that. Um, or you can just have it laid out alphabetically, or you can put them however you want. Um, they all have save states. Uh, there are different ways you can show it, like with a CRT filter, which you shouldn't do, because apparently there's a glitch with that that can ruin your Switch's screen. Or not ruin it, but it can like just temporarily affect it. Uh, apparently there's no long-term damage or anything, but you might want to avoid that until they patch it. Uh, you can also play all of these games that support any kind of multiplayer online with friends, so there's that. Uh, it seems pretty smooth. My only complaints so far are that it has like a, um, not a border, but like, uh, you know, a, a wallpaper on the background on the black bars. Right. And yeah. you can, it's very slight. It's just this little like gray thing, but you can't turn it off, which annoys me a little bit because m- most old game releases do this. Like they have an option if you want to have the pillar boxing there or just leave it black. And I like to usually just leave it black. That's not an option yet. That would be very easy to patch in, and it's not that distracting. The distracting thing for me is it has this little strip along the bottom that constantly tells you the start button is start, the select button is select. So my, minus is select, plus is start, and that you press uh, ZL and ZR to go back to the menu. And it's like, thanks, Nintendo. I will remember that. I promise I do not need it up 100%. It's not covering the game. The game... Because old games are not perfectly four by three ratio, it's right. it's just up a little bit. So it's it's again, it's not a huge distraction, but it is a little weird that you can't turn that off. So little growing pains there. The games run great. It's a really fast thing. Um, I guess my biggest complaint so far is I think the library is really anemic. They really oriented it towards multiplayer NES games because of the online component, and it. Man, if they were doing that, this should have launched with N64 Online or something, right? Mm-hmm. Because yes, yeah. what that means is that while you have a couple of the NES classics, you have things like Mario 1, Mario 3, Legend of Zelda, you do not have things like Metroid, Mario 2, Zelda 2, any of the Castlevanias, any major third-party ones. You're missing a lot of the really good stuff because what they do have is every fucking sports game. They have tennis and they have Tecmo Bowl, and they have hockey, and those are all terrible. Those are probably the worst aging pieces of the NES library, and I don't get why they would put that foot forward when we know they could put all those other ones that have aged much better and are of more interest easily. They could very easily put almost every single NES game on there. I think there are a couple of NES games that have like weird emulator issues, although Nintendo could still figure that yes. out, but like... 99% of the NES library you could fucking throw on that thing in, in, in like, that 50 megabyte patch and you wouldn't even notice. Yes. It's like, it's the weird thing about when you go back that far in terms of memory stuff, you think about, like, 
my fucking, I swear to God, like, the tips of my shoelaces could hold 20 fucking NES games on them. It's like, that's so, uh, such a small memory footprint that sometimes it feels a little bit weird when it's like 20 is, it was, it was the same way with like the NES Classic and looking at, because I had 30 games on it. It was like, I get it, but also it's like, why aren't there just like 200 fucking games on this thing? Because you could just do it, man. I mean, there's licensing at a certain point, but... Yeah. Yes. Although, but even if you just only did Nintendo, yes. like, first-party games, you could fit... Like, there's, there's not a hundred of those, but there are, like, dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Yes. And I, I feel like it is weird that this did not at least have, like... Yeah, I mean, it should have all three Marios. It should have both Zeldas. It doesn't have Kirby's Adventure. That one's really weird to me, because Kirby's Adventure also is one of the best NES games. It's aged pretty flawlessly. It's a, it's a great game, and that should be on there. Um, it has a couple little gems, like I've always been an advocate of the Yoshi puzzle game. I think that's a fun little game, and that is on there, and if you've never played it, it's a fun little alternative to Tetris or Puyo Puyo or something. Um, it does have Dr. Mario, which is okay. I don't know, it's just, it's a weird library. It's like, if you were gonna start with NES, why didn't you at least put the best NES? I mean, they put the best, they put Mario 3, Mario 1, and Zelda, which are probably the three best NES games, but they didn't put... Like, the ten best NES games. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I mean, you can play all six Mega Mans from Capcom, which are better than a lot of the games in this collection, because the Mega Man Legacy Collection is on Switch. It's just not in the NES collection, but those are also NES... I don't oh. know. This is all confusing and weird. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought you meant that those were in the 20s. No. I was confused for a second. Okay, yeah, because I was no. going to say, like, oh, that's awesome. No. That would be amazing. That would be a bad business move. That makes sense. There's, those games will never be on no. the NES thing because they're selling the collection on yes. Switch for, for, for Capcom money, not Nintendo money. No, Capcom money, and it's a great little collection, and it's cool. But yes, so there are yeah. now 26 NES games you can play on Switch if you also buy the Mega Man Legacy Collection number one. So, yeah, it's okay. It's cool. I, I'm def you know, some of these are great games. Mario 1 and Mario 3 are just two of the best games ever made. I, I'm playing Mario 3 again, which is sometimes a Mario game I think I underrate in my head, and then I play it, and I'm like, no, this is a fucking masterpiece. So I'm glad they're there. I do understand people's frustrations that, uh, especially if they were focusing on multiplayer stuff, why start with NES? That's just kind of baffling if that's your focus. Again, this would have been yeah. a beyond perfect... Like, imagine if this was N64 and they launched it with Mario Kart 64 and Smash Bros. and Mario Party 2... And then they also had things like Ocarina of Time and Mario 64 and all that other stuff. Like, people would be going gaga for this thing. Yeah, or at least, like, Super Nintendo has some some multiplayer games like an F-Zero or Super Mario Kart yeah. that can still hold up. You know, it's not going to be, like, not everyone's going to be, like, allowed to play Super Mario Kart today. But there would be, but at least that is a game that I would understand playing multiplayer on, on the surface and be like, that's a cool extra feature. I'm not sure if there is an NES game that I would want to play online multiplayer with. No. And I, like, you could have some fun with someone if you did, like, Mario 3 has the trade-off thing where, like, you do tiles as Mario or Luigi. And I think you could have fun, like, casually playing through the game like that. It is an interesting way to do it, but it's not an active multiplayer experience. I will say... This is a super solid foundation. If they do extend this to also do Super NES and N64 eventually, this could be really cool. Like, it it looks great on the screen. The games play great. It's all super fast to navigate, and they're right there. They've already confirmed they're adding more games through the end of the year, and they've told us what those are. Like, Metroid is coming, I should say. Um, I complained about that earlier, but it is coming, I think, in October. And that's interesting. And if you also had an app for this that had Super NES, and then you also had one with N64, 
that's what we've all been dreaming of since the virtual console on Wii is like, what if you could just get this in one package? And so it is, it makes me hopeful. I don't know if they'll actually follow through on that, but if they did, this could be really great. Yeah. So anyway, that's what's going on with the Nintendo Switch so far. Uh, the online. Have you used the voice chat yet? No. Okay. No, I don't. I don't know. I I've never played Splatoon two with voice chat anyway, and that was already there. Like I don't need to talk to other people while I play it. Um, I don't know. I I don't think I'm ever going to use that voice chat app because Skype okay, exists. I just wanted to know. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yes. If I, other people have tested that, if you want to go hear about it. All right. Interesting news. Sony has announced the PlayStation Classic, a blatant Super NES Classic ripoff, as I say in my notes, for $100. Uh, if you're trying to envision, like, oh, Sony announced the PlayStation, what is it? You know the Super NES Classic? It's like the Super NES, but it's smaller, and there's a little thing on the front, and you pull that down, and there's like a USB port, and you put your controllers in it, and it has, comes two with replica controllers, and it's got 20 games on it. Yes, it's exactly that, but for the PlayStation. Um, to be fair, and like obviously, yes, like Sony is doing this because the NES Classic and Super NES Classic were extremely successful. But to be fair, Nintendo did not invent that concept. You know, like they, there have been lots of retro consoles that did that beforehand. Nintendo's is just successful because it's Nintendo. They didn't invent it. Sony did go with the exact marketing moniker of PlayStation Classic. They could have called it anything. They went with the exact marketing moniker. They went with the exact same number of games. They even have, like, the little controller cutout things in the exact same place. They did price it at $20 more for $100, which is a little inexplicable because that's a fucking ripoff. I don't know. It's it's just – it made me laugh a little bit because it could not be more similar to the exact format Nintendo laid out if they tried. Because a lot of those other, like, mini consoles that other people have been doing, they, they – I mean, one, they have much shittier emulation and are often problematic. But they, like, come with, like, 100 games. And on some of them, especially Genesis ones, you can actually put the cartridges in and you can use old controllers and stuff. This is, like, the, the, the replica model kind of thing that Nintendo has been doing. Um, but yeah, it's $100. It comes with 20 games. We only know five of them. Those include Final Fantasy VII, Ridge Racer, stuff like that. Um, I think Wild Arms, I have yeah. it up. Wild, Wild Arms. Arms is a JRPG. Yeah. Um, Tekken 3. Tekken 3. And Jumping, Jumping Flash. I don't. Jumping Flash is like a weird first person. I think it was first person like platforming game. Weird. That's a weird one. Yeah. I, th- I think it was like a launch game or something. I think if you're a big PlayStation person, maybe you remember that game fondly. I remember seeing footage of it several years ago and being like, "This is a. I don't know why this game existed." Yeah. So we only know five of them. There's 15 we have yet to hear about. I have a lot of questions about this. My biggest question is the controllers that they have with it are the original PlayStation controllers. Right. Not DualShock, so they only have a D-pad. They do not have thumbsticks. Uh, the DualShock did launch, though, midway through the PlayStation's lifespan. It launched in 1997, uh, the DualShock, and then the PlayStation 2 was 2000. So there were three years, or roughly half of the PlayStation's library, was made for the DualShock controllers. So there are games like a Metal Gear Solid or something like that that were made with the express idea that you would have a, a thumbstick. So... It also potentially limits what games they can even put on it in the first place. Um, yeah, I don't think there are a lot of like games that needed the analog. Like you can play Metal Gear Solid just fine with the D pad, but there are a few. Like the the main one I know of is Super Monkey Ball. Like yeah. Super Monkey Ball literally only works if you have both analog sticks. So that like yeah, there are definitely a couple of games 
and and like Super Monkey Ball is probably the most beloved that this would happen to that cannot be on this at all because they don't have the, the analog stick controller. The only thing I heard one person, I, I forget where I heard this, um, so I'm sorry if I'm stealing this, someone pointed out was that because they're using just normal USB-A connectors for the controllers, it's possible you could connect your DualShock 4 with a USB port and then maybe use your analog sticks, but I don't think that they're going to put Monkey Ball on there and say you can only play this with a DualShock 4. No, yeah, and even that, like, I would, I would not buy this thing expecting that to work. No. It's like, that is something that's like, oh, maybe that will be kind of like how, like, you could plug a Sega Genesis controller into an Atari 2600 and it just worked because the fucking ports are the same. Yeah. Um, so there's a chance that that would happen, but I would not bet on it. No. So it's it's strange to me. That thing with the, the controllers is weird. Uh, 20 games was, I think, thin for the Super NES. I think 20 games is really hard to do for the PlayStation just because the PlayStation had such a broad library. I don't think with a limited number of games it's possible to ever fully encapsulate the PlayStation experience to any one person because it's so different to so many people, but I really question how they're going to be able to fit a a representative sample into just 20 games. Um, And then there's the issue that rant time. Sony, Sony has been steadfastly giving us all the middle finger when it comes to backwards compatibility for like six years now on the PS4. It's like, yes, you bought all those PS1 classics on the PS3. You bought all those PS2 classics. We've brought five of those PS2 classics over and we made you buy them again. But we're never doing anything with PS1. We're never doing anything with PS2. You can kind of do PS3 if you have an internet connection good enough for PS Now and you have $100 to shell out to have that service. Other than that, fuck you guys if you want backwards compatibility. They've just been completely silent about it. And their solution is now, here's a here's a little system. Pay us $100 and you can have 20 games. That's a price of $5 per game, which is... That is like the price point of PS1 Classics, if I remember. Um, so, like, it just... it I don't know. It feels especially tone-deaf of Sony uh, at this point in time. I think it's a weird move. I like I honestly I didn't have much of a reaction to it. Part of it is that like going back to something I foreshadowed like 30 minutes ago or however long it was of that my PlayStation One Classic is literally my PlayStation Vita. Yes. Like that is that like that was one of those things about the PlayStation Vita that if you didn't have a PS One or a PSP like like I didn't like that console is perfect because you can just get whatever you want. There is a huge list of PlayStation 1 and PC PSP classics you can play on the PlayStation Vita. It's got a gorgeous screen, and it's portable. It was like it was the perfect thing for something like that. Like, I, So I kind of just feel the same way about the PlayStation Classic as I did the NES Classic and the Super NES Classic of, like, I, I get the appeal if you are someone who's very nostalgic for it, and it's a cool-looking, tiny little version of that console, but it just doesn't make sense to me as, like, something I would ever buy to actually play these games. Especially, like, I think it is... The thing about this one that feels very weird, like, I can kind of excuse the analog stick thing, whatever. Um, not, like, announcing it and only saying five of the games when, why, like, why not just tell us all of them? I assume the licensing would have to be done by this point for whatever their 20 games are going to be. Because this, doesn't this last launch in, like, December or something? December 3rd. Isn't it? Yeah, December 3rd. So, like, that's that's the thing that's kind of weird to me is, like, why not just tell us? Because, you know, Sony doesn't have enough 
first party stuff the way that like Nintendo did for NES and Super NES classics that like a big portion of those consoles could just be Nintendo first games. There's a lot of licensing that has to go into getting the best PS1 games, which is something like a Spyro and and a Crash Bandicoot and then obviously like the Final Fantasy games. Like those are not Sony made games. So it's like I that's what I want to know most is what are the other 15 games like what is on here because there are hundreds of of, of PS1 games and it could be fucking anything and and it's I really want to know what they are I really want to know if there're going to be differences between this version and the Japanese version and not like in a way that like it would entice me to buy this thing I'm just very curious what they're going to do because I I feel like that what they should do is there should be two of these there should be one PlayStation Classic that just has 20 JRPGs and another one that has none of them because I feel like that's what you want for the PS1 library either you had the PS1 and you wanted JRPGs and it has like Persona 1 and the Persona 2s and it has all like Wild Arms and fucking like Xenogear like all those Final Fantasies yeah, Suicoden was an Xbox One one. No, it wasn't. I'm pretty sure. No, those, original were, no, Xbox those are both game, PlayStation it? 1 games. I own them on Vita. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. You're right, yeah. I'm thinking of something else yeah. for Suicoden. But yeah, there's like all those fucking games. There should just be one that has all of those because you could easily pull 20 great JRPGs. The, the fucking Dragon Quest, I think 6 was the PS1 one. Put all those on one of them and then everyone who wants to play fucking like NFL Blitz or fucking Tekken and all that shit... That should be a different one. It's Dragon Quest Seven. That's my that's that's, okay. that's my that's my thought on on PS One Classic. Yeah, but they're not going to do any of that, and I just no, of course not. I'm frustrated because yes, I do think it's it's I love the Vita for PlayStation One games. I would also like to be able to play some of those on my TV without having to go and hook up my PS Three, which is aging, and and you know you have to use DualShock Three with that system. And Sony could snap their fucking fingers and have that working on the PS4. I know not literally it would take work. They could pull some pennies out of their couch cushions and hire people to do it. Like, it's it's frustrating that they have that infrastructure. They haven't done anything with it. And then they announced this with 20 games and they won't even tell us what's on that. And, I mean, these are all... You're not going to be able to buy this on... By the time we know the 20 games, all the pre-orders will be sold out. Like, that's the other thing. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of frustrating on that level if you were waiting to see what the games are. Um, the pre-orders are already pretty much all gone. So, I don't know. The whole thing kind of annoys me. Like, it's it's a similar case to the, some of the frustration when the Super NES Classic was announced. But, at the time the Super NES Classic was announced, the 3DS is still out there that had most of those games on it, on the on the virtual console. The Wii U was, um, at the time, still the current Nintendo system, had all those games on there. Not every single one, but they were out there. Nintendo had an active virtual console thing. The Switch does not have an active backwards compatibility solution, although it did launch this week. They have NES, they're adding more of those. The Super NES games will be on there. Nintendo will put Super NES games on the Nintendo Switch. Like, there is no piece of Nintendo backstory that tells us they will just not ever do that. And the Switch is only 18 months old. But the PS4 is six years old, and they've never done a comprehensive or or even minorly comprehensive backwards compatibility solution. And it does frustrate me that, like, they are just so resistant to uh, any kind of market pressure on that, except... Doing what Nintendo did with the classic console thing because it's a it's a good holiday seller. So I don't know. It's it's strange to me. It's a little frustrating on that level as someone who's been kind of hoping Sony would bring some of this stuff over. You know, I'd love to be able to play Persona Three on my PS4. I'd love to be able to play the 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 the, the mini JRPGs that were on the PlayStation One. I was going to say Final Fantasy or Sweet Code in or any Wild Arms, any of those. So I don't know. It it could be an interesting thing. I don't get the lack of thumbsticks. 
we'll see what it is. Uh, I am curious to see what the library is going to be. Um, do you think they get Metal Gear Solid, or is Konami not doing that anymore? Man, yeah, like I, if they don't have Metal Gear Solid, why would you even do this? Like yeah. that's my feeling. Like I, I'm not even that big of a fan M- of Metal, Metal Gear, Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid never came like... out on the Vita. Yeah, that's one of the few PS1 classics yeah. that you cannot play on Vita. Yeah, but Metal Gear, but they did release the like um, remakes of two and three, or like yeah. the, the HD updates, because that's how I played those two games. But you're right; they never put the, that PS1 classic on Vita for whatever reason. I mean, you could get it on there, but you had to do like weird bullshit to do it. Well, you had to like hack um, your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, but yeah, it's not like it was impossible to play or something. Yeah, yeah, but but it, I just I feel like you would have to have that lined up because you need. I feel like you need that, and you need Symphony of the Night. Like it would be very weird to have a PlayStation Classic. That did not have those two games on They'll it. They'll have Symphony of the Night. I don't think that's a problem. Capcom is happy to put out Castlevania games on things. Like, Castlevania... No, Castlevania's Konami. What did I say? Capcom? You said Capcom. Oh, no, so, I meant Konami. Yeah, so it's, yeah, those are both Konami. Oh, so. they are. Okay, well... Okay, maybe then, but I don't know. Like, they've they've taken a really weird track on Metal Gear versus Castlevania. Because Castlevania, they just put out on everything. I don't know. Like, Metal Gear yeah. Solid 1 has, has only ever had the re-release for PS3, to my knowledge. Uh, it had a... A remake they did for GameCube, but um, in terms of the original PS1 version, that's the only time. So this that would be a little unprecedented if it came out on this, but uh, I hope it's there. Because, again, why why do it without Metal Gear Solid? That's, that's honestly, like, it's not even the best PlayStation game, but it's the one I think of when I think of the PlayStation 1. Yeah, it was like, and again, it's one of the weird things about Sony making a PlayStation Classic compared to Nintendo is that... Metal Gear Solid not being on a PlayStation Classic would be like Super Mario Brothers not being on in the NES Classic. Yes. But of course, Nintendo owned and makes Mario. That is not true of Sony and Metal Gear. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. All right, let's move on to. Uh, oh, I just closed my fucking outline. Why did I do that? We're still recording. I, can, I still have mine open. Okay. Do you want me to transition to the next story? You do the next story while I'm bringing this back up. Okay. So let's move on deeper into video game news, Jonathan. You have written here um, that we're going to talk about the Spider-Man's uh, PS4 sales, Marvel Spider-Man developed by Insomniac. Great game. If you want to hear our thoughts about it, you can listen to the last two podcasts. Um, but re- reports are in. It's sold so well that we know how many games it's sold, which is already, as if you know that they're telling you how many games they've sold, you know that it's sold a lot of fucking video games because video game companies just never tell you that bullshit. Um, but right now we know that in the first three days, uh, Marvel Spider-Man sold 3.3 million copies, um, which is, it was obviously only a PlayStation 4 exclusive. So that's 3.3 million copies just on the PlayStation 4. It is currently the like fastest selling PlayStation exclusive in the history of Sony. So that includes PlayStation 1, 2, and 3 games. Um, and it's, and then you also have here, it, those sales do not include the bundle sales. So my one game does not go in there. My PS4 Pro um, Spider-Man bundle does not count to those 3.3 million. So it's at least 3.3 million and one. Yes. If you count me. So again, this is the opening weekend of Spider-Man. Well, with Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. No, it was. It was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. In three days, it sold 3.3 million copies. That would translate to 198 million dollars in revenue, which is markedly higher than any opening weekend for any Spider-Man film. So it made a lot of money. And again, that's only three days. Who knows how high it's gotten in the last couple weeks. Uh, And it is the fastest PlayStation launch in the history of the PlayStation brand. Uh, Holy crap. That is a successful fucking video game, Sean. 
Yeah, it's selling like you know in, in, to put this in pers- to perspective because obviously you have to compare it to like other console exclusives. We're talking like Halo Three numbers, in, yeah. like it's beaten Halo 3's record for like the equivalent record for the Xbox. So yeah, this is it's fucking selling. I'm fucking happy because I there were I remember um um before this game came out, I you know I frequent different uh, video game uh, forums like subreddits and Resetera and that kind of stuff. And there are some people that doubted Spider-Man, and they're like, no, Spider-Man's not going to sell that much. It's not going to beat God of War, because God of War, I think, was actually the previous holder of that fastest-selling uh, PlayStation exclusive, because it sold a lot really quickly also. Um, and I was like, nope, Spider-Man, you guys don't fucking get it. Spider-Man is huge. Spider-Man is huge worldwide. Spider-Man is loved by people in the Europe markets. It's loved, it's loved by people in the Asian markets. Like, Spider-Man is an incredibly popular, enduring brand that has been that way for decades at this point. And he's on a particular upswing in the past couple of years with the new movies and stuff. And so I, I always held held the faith that this game was going to sell a lot. But this is fucking a lot, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, obviously the phrase Spider-Man on PlayStation, like the PlayStation is the biggest console in the world right now. Spider-Man is one of the biggest brands in the world right now. You actually put some fucking work into it and make it look like more than a shitty licensed game. It was going to sell well. I think the fact that the game is a masterpiece helped it to sell really well. And, yeah, that's more than I even expected. This was always going to be a slam dunk. This game was always going to make an insane amount of money. But that is a huge launch. And I think Insomniac now has license to make as many Spider-Man games as their heart desires. And then when they're done, other people will. Um, There are going to be a lot of Spider-Man games. Yes, it's, it's, and I hope that this is also just like bolsters the Marvel Game Studios thing that, yes. you know, it's like a very new part of like the Marvel Productions side of stuff. That to have them make more big games because it's been so, so bizarre to me that Marvel has been the biggest thing in movies for a decade at this point, And we've seen fucking crap shit on the video game side. There's been like a handful of mobile games. There was that like weird MMO thing that got shut down. I think late last year, earlier this year that just like kind of came and went immediately. There's just been no movement on that side. And then finally we got Spider-Man, a PlayStation 4 exclusive made by fucking Insomniac with all that budget. And this game also had just fantastic marketing. I think that goes a lot to this as well. Like the trailers were great. You saw trailers in front of movies and stuff. So, like, Sony was clearly all behind this game uh, on top of everything else. And I just hope that means that we get to see other really cool games for, with, from the Marvel properties because they are really rich characters that you can make some really cool games with. And Marvel has just not done anything with it. And finally, there's like Spider-Man has broken that ground in such a huge way. They have got to move on that. I love that Sony has so far had the two biggest launches in its history this year with God of War and Spider-Man. And I believe Xbox next week is coming up on its second console exclusive of the year. <laughs> with yeah, Between sea of, 4? sea of Thieves and now Forza Horizon 4, which looks great. Uh, I'm excited to play it. But yes, I believe they've Holy had... Holy shit, Sea of Thieves came out this year. Yes. Holy shit, that feels like that was a lifetime ago. No one's playing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway. I have not heard about the game in a while. Yeah, uh, Xbox has had exactly as many game releases... As Sony has had record-breaking opening weekends. It's, yeah. it's a pretty stark difference here so far. All right. Uh, the next piece on here, just talking about big numbers. This is a number that scared me, Sean. It just it scared yes. me. Epic Games claims that Fortnite... Uh, claims, they, I'm sure they're not making this up, say that Fortnite now has 
78.3 million monthly players. So Spider-Man, it made a lot of money, 3.3 million copies, it's pretty good. 78.3 million people are playing Fortnite every month, and even if only a tiny fraction of those are paying for, like, microtransactions, Epic probably has more Scrooge McDuck vaults at this point than they know what to do with. And there are a lot of kids who are just, I assume, like, having their minds turned to mush by this, because my understanding of Fortnite, which I have never played, no, I tried it, I tried it two weeks ago, I forgot about that. I tried Fortnite wow, once. You, it was not fun. You're one of the youths, Jonathan. Yeah, I didn't get it. I tried the Battle Royale thing, and I died immediately twice, and then I deleted it from my Switch. Um, but anyway, so I am not one of the 78.3 million monthly players. But if you are, I hope you're okay. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That's like, that's a significant, a reasonably significant percentage of like the population of the United States of America, which is 300 million about. Yeah, that's like a fifth of the plus. United States. That's fucked up. Yeah. That's fucked up. That's a lot of fucking people, Jonathan. Fortnite, man. I don't get it. If you do, write into us. I'd love to hear more about it. I just don't understand. I, like, I have no antipathy towards it. I have no animosity. I hear from a lot of, like, teachers and stuff that it is absolute hell in classrooms because people won't get off their mm-hmm. goddamn phones. Can you confirm that, mm-hmm. Sean? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've had I've had a couple of experiences of just, like, that fucking Fortnite mobile. It'd be fine if it was on everything but phones. It's when they put it on phones, it's like, stop it. That's that's irresponsible epic. You shouldn't have fucking done that. That was cruel and evil. So. Um, yeah, I feel like Fortnite, this is the moment, Jonathan, where we're old people now. We have, we have officially transitioned over to being old. And it's very stressful to me that it happened in video games, which was the thing that like I was into in like a cool, youthful way. And that like the old people didn't get. And now we're so old that, like, there's video games that we don't get. Because it's like, I wasn't into Minecraft, but I get Minecraft. I've played Minecraft. I've enjoyed Minecraft. You could I tell a Minecraft person is what cool. Minecraft is. Yes, and, and, and it's a relatable... It's a fucking... Minecraft's a fucking video game. I, I can't bring myself to play Fortnite. Not because I think it's bad. I think it's probably pretty good. I think I would probably actually maybe like it. But there's, like, a, like, built-in lock in my soul... That is the old person thing that I cannot overcome this in the same way that if you were like in, you know, when when Elvis Presley was coming up and all the fucking 14 year old girls were like, you know, scream their heads off about Elvis Presley. And you're like 25 or 26 years old is like Elvis Presley. I don't get the big deal. What's what's with that guy? I It's like and you can't even listen to his music. You can't even bring yourself to put like the record on of an Elvis Presley song. That's us, Jonathan. That's where we are now. Here's my working thesis. Okay. Fortnite is the jewel of video games. Now, here's what I mean by that. You know what jewel is? The e-cigarette? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's the jewel, J-U-U-L, of video games. And here's what I mean by that. Last summer, uh, well, two summers ago, so not summer 2018, but summer 2017, I was teaching a class. I, I worked with an education company, taught the ACT and the SAT for a while. And one day after class, my kids go home. And I'm uh, cleaning up the room, and on the ground is this little thing I think is a flash drive. And I'm like, I have no idea. That's Someone left their flash drive here. And I went and like, left it on the desk, and I'm like, it doesn't really it, – it looks like a flash drive, but it's off a little bit. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. But I like went and left it with like the lost and found, you know, like where we put stuff that kids had left. And I'm like, hope someone gets their flash drive. <laughs> a week later, I read in the New York Times about this thing called the Jewel, which is the new hot e-cigarette thing 
that every kid in America from 14 on up is fucking addicted to because we still haven't properly regulated nicotine in the United States. And it's like blowing up. And the whole story was about teachers not knowing how to restrict kids smoking jewels because jewels look like little flash drives. And teachers would see kids taking them out or leaving them around and not know what they were. And so they couldn't know to confiscate them. And that a lot of school districts were having to educate teachers on what this new thing was so they would know to look for it. And that's the day I knew I was an adult. That's the day I knew I was an old man is it's like, I'm one of those teachers. There was a piece of technology and I didn't know what it was. I literally saw a jewel in my classroom and I had no idea what it was. The kids were hiding it from me. I had to learn about it in the goddamn New York Times that I pay for. That's what Fortnite is. It's like, God, what's, what's wrong with today's youth, Jonathan? Back in our day, we didn't play Fortnite. We played fucking Halo. That was a real video game. We didn't smuggle fucking e-cigs into school on flash drives. We hid Magic the Gathering cards in our fucking backpack and played it in the cafeteria or, like badasses. Or you just went out to the parking lot at, Reese, at uh, lunch break and you just smoked a normal cigarette. Like a normal person. No, that's, you just killed your That's, that's what a delinquent does. I played, Well, I didn't really play Magic the Gathering cards, but I knew people who did. Yu-Gi-Oh was my thing, but I didn't usually bring it to school. No, that's they would take away. I got some. I got when I was like in the first grade. I had a Charizard Pokemon card taken away from me because I had it in class. I was going to trade it because I had an extra. Yeah, and and I lost it. And I don't know. Miss Sumner still has that somewhere, somewhere in this world. That that Charizard card is there, and I will never have it back. All right. This has been Sean and Jonathan. Feel old. It's not going to be the last time we, we do this segment, is my prediction. Yes. All right. Uh, let's see. Final piece of news this week, and this is a sad one. Nobuo Uematsu, the great composer uh, of video games, most famous for his work on the Final Fantasy series, is taking an indefinite hiatus from work due to illness. He apparently has been ill on and off for some time, and he said in a blog post, I have decided to take an extended leave of absence and give my mind and body the time they need to properly mend. If I am to return, I want to do so in full health. Uh, I found this kind of heartbreaking news. Nobuo Umatsu obviously is just one of the most important figures in video game music. I think his body of work uh, from Final Fantasy 1 through 10 when he stopped working on the series is one of, if not the most significant single bodies of work any musician has ever contributed to video games. Um, you know, I, his work will be remembered in the industry as long as video games are made. And I hope he gets better. Uh, and if he does not, I wanted to say nice things about him now while he is with the living. Uh, just so we don't feel bad about that later. But again, hopefully he makes a full recovery and can come back and do more work on video games. Uh, because I don't want to envision a world where Nobuo Uematsu is not writing music for video games. That would be very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, his his Final Fantasy soundtracks are easily among the best in in all video games. That would, like became starkly clear when you played Final Fantasy 15, and they had on the radio all the different like selections from the older soundtracks, and it was just like that was some of my fondest memories of that game is riding around in that car and just listening to old tracks from Final Fantasy one or four or six and seven, you know, or like ten. Um, yeah, yeah. Hope he, hope he gets better. His, his work is incomparable. Yes, the, my favorite thing about Final Fantasy as a series is his music, easily. There are many good things about Final Fantasy, but I don't think anything is better than the music. And I just, I, I like think about it and I'm like, I want to go play Final Fantasy 3. 
I fucking love the music. I'm talking about original three, not six. Six also has great music. You can't really go wrong if you're talking about Final Fantasy music. But yes, um, this definitely made me sad to hear. And again, hope he makes a full recovery uh, with whatever is going on. So send in good vibes over to Japan on that. All right, finally, Sean. Two, yes. two pieces of listener questions, sort of. All right? Okay, yeah. We're going to go with a literal listener question. I put out the call today. I said, we got a lot of news, but I don't know what else we got to talk about. So anybody got a question? And we got one good listener question that I wanted to throw on the outline. So this is from Anthony on Twitter asked us, since Persona Q2 is coming out on 3DS in Japan later this year, and I assume the U.S. next year, what are your thoughts on the people who say Nintendo needs to stop supporting the 3DS because it's been out for seven years and the Switch is the new thing in terms of handhelds? Sean, as someone who owns neither system, do you have an answer to this question? Yes, my opinion obviously is the more important out of the two of us. We know that I'm the Nintendo guy on this podcast. Um, like, I don't think that there's... like Because, yeah, I have definitely heard people... And listen to some other video game podcasts that were people, there are some people that are like very weirdly adamant about like, they need to stop supporting the 3DS in a way that like, I don't understand because it all, it like doesn't come from a place. If it felt like it came from this place, I would kind of get it of like, I want them to shift their resources off of putting stuff on the 3DS onto the Switch. But it doesn't feel like it's coming from that place. It just feels like it's coming from this place of like, why are they still supporting the 3DS? And it's very emotional and angry. I don't understand that. Um, it's like, I think, because they're like, they are supporting the 3DS, but not in a big way. You know, they are, we talked about this last week's podcast. They're like, a lot of that last Nintendo Direct felt like the main stuff coming from Nintendo onto the 3DS is them porting stuff like Luigi's Mansion 1 or some of like the Mario and Luigi RPGs that weren't on there yet, and then moving some of those games forward. And it feels like Nintendo's first-party development, if you're concerned about them spending too many resources on the 3DS, they very clearly are moving everything onto the Switch. Like, Fire Emblem's going onto the Switch. Pokemon's going onto the Switch. They are making fucking Switch games. Animal Crossing. Like, yeah, Animal Crossing is going onto the Switch. Like, all the big staples of the 3DS... All those are moving on to the Switch. Most of them are coming out next year. Um, what is happening on the 3DS, which is to be expected, is particularly for Japan, there's a long history of Japan supporting consoles way past them being, like, the primary platform because Japan's, like, adoption of consoles is different than what, like, we expect from the West where there's a much more forward movement, in, in particularly in America, to adopting, like, new machines very quickly, where in certain parts of Europe and Japan... You know, you're, that's why you still get, like, FIFA games. I don't think there are technically still FIFA games coming out of the PS2, but there might as well be, because there were people in European countries that were buying those games on the PS2, like, up till, like, probably 2014 or 2015, I think, is around they stopped porting some of those old, like, legacy FIFA games onto the PS2 that just had, like, updated rosters. Um, and it's the same thing we saw with, like, I mean, Persona 4 coming out on the PlayStation 2 in 2008 in Japan. The fucking PlayStation 3 was out for two years before the Persona 4 came out. This is, I see this as kind of the same thing. It is a, the console that has a huge, wide base. They have already made one of these games on this console, so it's a lot more cost-effective for them to make a sequel on the 3DS than for them to make a sequel on the Nintendo Switch, where they need to make new models and all that stuff. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense to put a game like Persona Q2 or any of those other kinds of games and put them onto the 3DS rather than spend all the money and resources putting them on the Switch when that's not what you're looking for. Yes. I think a really Im- I agree with all of that and a really important point to make here is that with Persona Q2 Nintendo is not doing anything there that's an Atlas game. Atlas yeah. made the t- like if Atlas came to Nintendo and said we would like to make a Persona game for Switch Nintendo would be like 
here's a bag of money. Please do that. You know, like that's what they would do. Atlas made the decision. We're going to make this for the Nintendo DS or the Nintendo 3DS. Uh, an important thing to note also about Persona Q2, that game could not be made for Switch. It literally could not be made for Switch because it is an Etrian Odyssey game. I think a lot of people don't know this about Persona Q or Etrian Odyssey. Right, yeah. Etrian Odyssey is a series that was born for the Nintendo DS to make specific use of the dual screen functionality. And you need two screens because one is your dungeon, one is your map, and you literally draw your map as you go. You could not do that on the Nintendo Switch. You would have to do something substantially different. It would not be Etrian Odyssey anymore. And it's the same with Persona Q and Persona Q2. It's a Nintendo 3DS thing. You can't do it on the Nintendo Switch. So shut up about it. Like, I am in the same point as you. Like, people get so angry about this. Like, every time something is announced for Nintendo 3DS, there are people on Reddit and on Twitter and in the games journalism industry, which is extra weird, who act like the fucking sky is falling because Nintendo has not come to every house in the world, taken every 3DS, smashed it with a hammer, salted the earth, and made sure you could never play 3DS again. Like, it's a very weird attitude to have, especially because, as you say, zero resources are being pulled away from the Switch for this. Like, Nintendo has had an insane roster of games for Switch in its first year, and in its second year, like, slightly less insane, but... Y'all saw the Smash Bros. Ultimate trailers, right? Like, clearly, nothing is being taken away from you because they still put out some ports on 3DS and because some of their partners at places like Atlas still sell well on the system. Persona Q2 is a game for the Japanese market much more than it is for the North American market. Like, Persona 5 was pretty big over here, but it was still substantially bigger in Japan. Persona Q2 will be bigger in Japan. Japanese people really like these kinds of video games on a portable system. Um, they're, you know, Etrian Odyssey is a huge series over there. Atlas sells, Atlas's 3DS games sell very, very well on 3DS, especially in Japan. Less so over here again, but still well enough that they all get localized virtually at this point. And I guess my other point beyond all of that is I like the 3DS. I like it a lot. You can do f fun, cool, special things on that system that you cannot do on other systems. There is no other system that has that two-screen setup. There is no other system that has glasses free, three, uh, free 3D built right into the screen that you can do fun, cool things with. There's no other system on the market anymore now that the Vita is dead that is a true portable-only thing that you can just put in your pocket and go. The Nintendo Switch is great. It's not a portable-only system. You can't throw a Switch in your pocket. You're going to hurt it, you know, or yourself because it's really big. Um, and that's not a knock against the Switch. It's just not what it is. I like the 3DS. I like playing games on it. Um, maybe one day the Nintendo Switch will change this for me. But if you ask me what my favorite system of all time is, I say the Nintendo DS writ large. DS to 3DS because all your DS games are playable on it, right? Um, so, like, that lineage of systems is my favorite video game experience. I love playing stuff on there. And I'm clearly not alone in that. There are 60-some million 3DSs out in the wild. It's a very well-selling system. It would be weird to expect Nintendo to literally cut off not all, not just all first-party development, but all third-party development. To, like, tell their partners they cannot make games for their platform anymore just because Nintendo made a shiny new system. That's not how anything works. And I can understand some specific cases. Like, Luigi's Mansion on 3DS is a little confusing when Luigi's Mansion 3 is coming out on Switch. And I'm not sure why it's not coming out on both, you know? But that's one thing. I think, in general, the games that are coming out on 3DS, 
make sense for 3DS. There's stuff like, even this year, there was that game Sushi Striker, Way of the Sushido. I have not played the full game yet, but I did play the demo, and I'd love to catch up on it before Top 10 time, because it's really cool. Pretty much everyone who played that on both agrees it's actually much better on 3DS, because that's where it was made for. It was ported to Switch late in development, so it would sell better. But it's a game that was designed to use a stylus in the dual screen setup, and I think, and I certainly felt that, because I played the demo on both. It just feels more natural there. Does it look as nice and colorful as it does on your big 1080p TV? No, but that's not everything that matters in a video game. So the Nintendo 3DS is cool. Nintendo is not going to salt the earth with their own successful console because they launched a new successful console, and people who complain about this need to get a hobby. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's also, even if you just take all the specifics out, which I agree with you, there's like, there are lots of things about the 3DS specifically that make it, it's not like moving from PS2 to PS3, exactly, because there are things about the 3DS that you can only do on the 3DS. Even if you take that out of the equation, it still is just, from the perspective of a company like Atlas, it is the sign of a healthy, like, well-managed company that they are, you know, they're making, like, the next Shin Megami Tensei game is coming out on Nintendo Switch. Their next big new game that they're making for Nintendo platforms, that is going on to the Switch. It is healthy and smart for that company, then, that has a lot of developers that have a lot of experience making 3DS games, a pipeline that is designed to make 3DS games that have a game that already exists running on the 3DS that they can use as a base to then make a sequel, and there's a smaller game for more niche market onto the 3DS. Like, like again, just take all the specifics of, like, why that game could only exist on 3DS out of it. If it was a PS2 to PS3 situation, PS3, PS4, like, Nintendo Wii U to Switch, whatever, like, it would be the same thing. It is smart for them to make a smaller risk game that's going to have a smaller reward on the system that they know they can make for and, and then worry on, like, the big new projects for the big new thing. Like, it's just, it's an example of the company making a game, make games that have, like, a diverse portfolio, which is something I really like to see because it means that Atlas is, like, a smart company that is being run by smart people. Yeah. I especially don't get the bitching of it with Atlas because it's like, guys, they're making Shin Megami Tensei Five for Nintendo Switch. Like, it doesn't get much bigger than that, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, they have committed to your your chosen system, the Nintendo Switch, clearly the future of their brand, they just are still releasing some games on 3DS. Like, again, it's not like Persona Q2 is not available to you because you can't play it on your Switch. Your 3DS is still fine. It's there. It's good. It's fun. Just try it, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, anyway. But thank you, Anthony, because that is a good question, and I'm glad we actually got to take the chance to talk about that because it does annoy me, and I'm glad we could discuss it. Yeah, and it feels like something we kind of offhandedly have talked about kind of every time we talk about a Nintendo Direct, yes. but I've never really dug into it. So, yeah, good question. Yeah. All right. Final listener comment this week. Um, so, Sean, you know our Persona 5 spoiler cast thing I did where I took all our spoiler casts and edited it into a ten and a half hour audio thing? Yes, that weird thing you did that, like, has gotten listened to a lot in a way that confuses me. Oh, it's yes. our most successful episode ever. Across all platforms, easily. It's, it's like, exponentially higher than any other episode we've ever put out. It's our Fortnite. It's our Fortnite. That's how I like to think of it. I love that we do, we are conscious about the lengths of these podcasts, but the one that's ten and a half hours long does have the most downloads. Anyway, on YouTube, we get comments every so often. We've got another one of these uh, about people who don't like in those... Uh, in that discussion when we bring in current events things like Donald Trump to try to allegorize you know, what we're talking about and contextualize it in the world. 
Yes, the game that is extremely political, talking about, like, modern politics. Yes. Yeah, weird we talked about Donald Trump. Yeah. So this week, Alex on YouTube uh, wrote on the YouTube version of that podcast, Ugh, their statements about Trump are cringeworthy. Now, I will note, Alex did then immediately subscribe to our channel, so semi-mixed signals there. But I have a, 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 a thing to tell you, Alex. We're not going to shut up about Trump. Because yeah. we don't do it enough. We don't do it much. We frankly talk about politics very rarely on this show. But since you asked, Sean, do you want to piss off some people and do 10 minutes on American politics as we do like every six months? Is it that time again? Is it time for us to, to open up the well, Jonathan? All right. Turn the podcast off if you don't want to hear it. You can come back next week. We will talk more Dragon Quest. We will talk more stupid shit. Before a moment, Sean, let's just vent... This is like, you know, the kettle is boiling over. I'm just going to open the valve for a second. Let that steam come out. As of this taping, <laughs> Republicans yeah. are still trying to force through Donald Trump's Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, an extraordinarily unqualified man for the office in every fucking way, who we also learned over the last week potentially sexually assaulted a woman when he was 17. And just tonight, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer published a story in The New Yorker revealing that he sexually assaulted a second woman. And we also know that scumbag lawyer Michael Avenatti, who is also weirdly effective at his scumbag lawyering, is representing a third woman who uh, is also accusing Brett Kavanaugh. And, yeah, these times are fucked up, Sean. Yeah, like, it's... It's, it's like, it's... Very frustrating to me personally that we have to live in this point in time where that is happening, and I am not that like I, we should be shocked that like the Supreme Court nominee has now had three allegations of sexual assault against him. That's like that should be like this huge incredible scandal. It just feels like, of course, like of course, it's like I would have been shocked if he hadn't. I would have been amazed. I would have been utterly amazed if Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee did not have multiple sexual assault allegations against him. You know, like that would have well, been like a really delightful surprise. Neil Gorsuch didn't. Like at least Neil Gorsuch did actually seem like a decent human being in his personal life, no matter how egregious his views may be. Like Donald Trump at least got that one competent. Sure. But, you yeah. know, yeah, you flip a coin with Donald Trump, someone's assaulting somebody. That's who he is. That's That's who this administration is. That's what... This party is at this moment in time. I mean, yeah, I agree with you, Sean, because I was thinking about this, that, you know, I, I wrote this tweet at some point over the last week that I said, if you had told me a month ago that in a month we would be in a in a position with a Supreme Court nominee that and a, and a party reacting to it that was even more shameful than what our country did to Anita Hill in the 1990s. And then I kind of I was going to say I'd be shocked. And then I I said, you know, I wouldn't be shocked, actually. That sadly, depressingly sounds like exactly where we would be. That is exactly where we yeah. are, which is that these are serious allegations that deserve to be looked into seriously because there is no job in government more serious than a Supreme Court seat. And Republicans have been engaged in active character assassination of the accuser. They have been trying to push through this nomination as quickly as possible. I don't know if you had a chance, because it came out right as we were starting, to read the Ronan Farrow story. But it starts... Not yet. It explains that Republicans have had the news on this second allegation all week. 
And the point earlier this week, Sean, where Republicans started saying they didn't actually want to hold the hearings and that they wanted to move up the date of the confirmation vote, not move it down, that's when they heard this. They started to push it faster when they knew there were more than one accusation out there. It could not be more disgusting or shameful what they're doing. And the, the crazy thing is, frankly, this would be true whether or not Brett Kavanaugh were accused of sexual assault. That's just the awful, terrible cherry on top of this guy who, if I have to hear one more fucking Washington pundit say, but he's qualified in every way. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's, he's a judge who was on a circuit court. That's it. That's all he's ever done. He's a conservative judge. That's all it is. He hasn't done anything extraordinary. He's done no extraordinary cases. His biggest fucking item on his resume is working for the George W. Bush White House, which was a clusterfuck. Those are the people who tanked the American economy and got us into two unwinnable wars. This is not a guy who has a sterling record. He's just a judge. Like, if that's your standard, there are hundreds of people who are equally qualified. There's nothing special about this guy. And that's the standard that we have is as long as he has a fucking hand that can write an opinion and a conservative brain that will put that down into the pen, they'll put anyone on the court. And that's disgusting. That's disgusting. There is no sense of procedure here other than the Federalist Society, this creepy, fucked up organization that exists solely to put people on the bench who will take rights away from women and minorities. They put a list together. Donald Trump picked someone from that list, mainly because this guy has extraordinary views on presidential power, which Donald Trump really likes. Hmm. And then they put this all together. That alone is damning before you even get to, and he potentially sexually assaulted two to three women or more. Yeah, no, I mean more. If yes. there's three allegations that have come out, it's more than that. Yes. Like you can be pretty fucking sure about that. It's something where I have been for one of the classes, the last classes I'm taking to get my teacher's certif uh, certificate. Uh, it's a sort of American literature class, and for that we've been reading a bunch of the like early American, you know, founding fathers kind of stuff. And I was reading um, some of the Federalist Papers yesterday, like a lot of the James Madison one, a couple of Alexander Hamilton ones. And I was also reading some of Benjamin Franklin's, rereading some of his autobiography. So if you not read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, you should. It's fucking hilarious. Benjamin Franklin was the best. Just the fucking, the most amazing person ever. Um, Is it called My yeah, Life they, in Syphilis? I think it's just called the autobiography because it's like one of the first autobiographies ever written. Yeah. He kind of almost invented the form. Benjamin Franklin, weird, cool dude. Um, but yeah, but I read some Madison, some Hamilton, some Jefferson, a lot of that stuff. Fucking man, they really, they should really let you read in high school some of the racist shit that Thomas Jefferson wrote because it's like, you know, like they tell you, you read in the textbook, like, and he had slaves and it's like, he had conflicted, blah, 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 and you're like, I read some shit that was like, I wish I could remember what it was from. I think it was basically from like a series of essays, but I can't remember what it was called. But it's like, that dude was fucking like racist, even by the standards of the day. Like he was fucking out there with like race war conspiracy bullshit. It was crazy. It really changed some of my like thoughts on some Thomas Jefferson stuff. That I knew he was racist. I didn't know it went that far. Um, but anyways, back to like the Madison Hamilton, like Federalists, like the founding of the Constitution and the framing of the Constitution and like the arguments about 
the, the arguments that have existed for the entirety of our nation about like the balancing between state power and and you know federal power and all that shit that is just like exhausting to read this like we've been arguing kind of like with that Spider-Man comic I've talked about with Gun Control we've been arguing about the same political shit for like 300 years and it's like really scary to read some of that stuff but it's also just so infuriating to live in the society where it's like the the Republican Party is just like hypocrisy made manifest in this way that's so just I mean it's, it's always been true for my entire life for our entire lifetime it's probably been true for longer than that but that's as far as my experience can extend that they are just like the political philosophy that they try to expound is so hypocritical of them trying to simultaneously stand for like this very traditionalist American politics, like where we believe in the constitution and the sanctity of the constitution. That's where so much of the fucking gun control stuff comes from is how, you know, religiously they uphold the, the second amendment, like is one of the 10 commandments, um, like all that stuff. And yet at the same time, Every single part of their political philosophy is 100% against everything that the people who fucking made the Constitution, like James Madison, actually believed in. And they are the people that are, like, you know, writing this populist, this, like, pseudo-populist wave, taking over the government and trying to circumvent every single check and balance built into the fucking government since 1786 or 1787, whenever we ratified the Constitution. Every single one they run into, they are trying to cheat their way through. And it's, like, so fucking annoying and just really sets me on edge that, like, at the same time, you know, they're, like, smiling and stabbing you in the back. They're saying they stand up to these traditional values. They trick and cheat their supporters that, that who believe in this fucking Constitution bullshit they peddle. And yet, at the same time, every single move they make and the, every single move they've been making for decades politically has been a, like, systematic dismantling of the Constitution at every single turn. And it fucking sets me on edge. You know, uh, it's because I think the Supreme Court is cool. You know, it's not just that it's uh-huh. one, it's important. Like, that's the main thing. It's really fucking important for all of our daily lives. Um, more so for other people. You and I are both straight, cis, white men. Like, it doesn't affect us as much as it affects a lot of other people who are not as privileged as we are. And that is a thing to, you know, note in all of these discussions. It's a very influential institution, obviously. It's also one of, I think, the coolest ideas in the founding of the country. It's a really interesting way to set up the judicial branch and how laws are passed and governed in the United States. It's not a perfect idea. The whole lifetime appointment thing made more sense in the 1700s than it does now. You know, we probably should have changed that at some point. Yeah. But I think the Supreme Court is a really interesting institution. And it's they've turned it into such a full fucking political sideshow joke. Brett Kavanaugh wouldn't last a fucking day. He would be laughed off stage if you were taking any of this seriously. He has no qualifications to be in this seat. He is a shitty nominee. He can barely keep his shit together in the nomination hearings. He is a, he's just a bad candidate in the Senate hearings. In a different time, half of the people in the Republican Party wouldn't even be taking him seriously. They'd say, no, Mr. President, try again. Get someone who seems fucking decent for the job. And again, that's before you even bring in the sexual assault allegations. And and the fact that they would even consider this, that they would even consider this when there are multiple sexual assault allegations out there and he is the most unpopular Supreme Court nominee in the history of modern polling. He has fallen below the level of Robert Bork, Ronald Reagan's nominee, who spectacularly flamed out in one of the most famous incidents of, of Supreme Court history. 
nomination history, and they would even consider it, it's it's not just anti-constitution, it's anti-democratic. There is no sense of any uh, democratic fealty here, and that is what pisses me off most. This isn't even really a rant about Trump, because they'd be doing this whether or not he was president. They're just fucking awful. Yeah. But there is something about, like, Trump being in the office that feels like it is emboldened absolutely, like, every single worst instinct that party has had. Like, it's it's... Because it's like, as soon as Trump becomes president, it becomes so clear that none of it matters. Like, it, it becomes so clear immediately that there is no limit. There's no, like, there's no point at which, like, it's become too much, which is, like, a very weird spot to be in as a society. That it's like, we don't know what the limit is. You know, we don't know where it's like, what could this person do that has gone so far that, that you would just laugh them off the stage? Because that didn't happen to Trump. Everything about Trump tells you that, like, he should have been laughed off the stage. Every single facet of him off the presidential nomination stage. He shouldn't have been there at all. And and he's not only was he there, he's the fucking president. He's been the president for two years, basically, at this point. Well, and specifically um, in, result, in regard to that, like, you cannot seriously fight sexual, allega- sexual assault allegations as a party and have Donald Trump as the head of your party. It's literally impossible yeah. because we know this guy has assaulted at least 19 women. And we know that because those 19 women said it. And Donald Trump also said it on tape and we all heard it and the republicans did fuck nothing about it and that was it the day they decided to stand by this guy after the access hollywood tape eventually they are on a slow decline to not just being a sex assault neutral party they're going to be a a pro sexual assault party that is where they are rapidly headed at this point because all the rhetoric this week about brett kavanaugh they didn't even hold up his line of like he said she's lying all the republicans said yeah, it's probably true, but he was 17, so boys will be boys, it doesn't matter. They're very rapidly going to the point of like, no, this is what men do, and it's okay, and this is your place, and that's fine. And that's what they want. They hate people, and specifically they hate women, so fucking much that they will let a sexual assaulting president nominate a sexual assaulting Supreme Court justice so he can sit on the bench next to another known sexual assaulter, Clarence Thomas, and... Two of those five Republican votes will strip bodily autonomy away from women in this country. It is horrific in the most possible way. And we act like the sky isn't falling. The sky is The sky fell. And it's crazy. Yes. And I feel like we've all gone insane. Yes. The, it's just like the whole... It, it like it, Again, it just feels like the U.S. government has collapsed. Like It feels like it is, there's no... There's no kernel there anymore. That was like the like one thing that felt like at for most points of American history, even if the, the government was incompetent or fucking up, there's still a kernel somewhere in there of like the, the Constitution, like the like some of the prevailing ideals. Like there was something there that you could fall back on that is like you know at least you know even if I disagree with opinions of many of the justices on the Supreme court, I can't deny that a lot that they're smart and like qualified. It's like, there's no, there's no kernel there. There's no, there's no excuse. There's no pretension. There's no pretending that any of that shit is real anymore. or Any of that shit actually matters. It's, it's, and it's something that again, like reading some, like I really recommend people if you have not, since all this shit has started happening to go back and read, some of that stuff that you read in your U.S. history class in high school or in, in you know, U.S. government or whatever it was and read some of that, like, writing from around the, the making of the, the, you know, breaking off from England and then making the Constitution 
because there is stuff in there to like see of like I don't think the founding fathers would be like like someone like a James Madison would be shocked at what's happening right now. I think they would have looked at what's happening right now and been like, "There's a lot of shit." Like like you have not changed enough about the way the government works to to scale to the, how huge the country is because it's like the fucking constitution was made for 13 states in the late fucking 18th century, man. Like it's not like it, it is malleable and it is elastic in certain ways and is like a really incredible. Like probably the most incredible like single like founding piece of political writing in the history of the human species, but even that's not enough to withstand like how much the nature of what this country is has changed, and all of the people who made the constitution, all the people who who were involved in making America like an independent nation, all would have seen that this is that this would not have worked. They all would have known that like the way that like the how how thinly stretched our representative democracy is at this point is not functional at all. And it's like really infuriating to see that that's been there the whole time. And again, the party that's like in government, in power right now that says that they are the ones that hold all those documents and all those ideals that's so sacred, you know, so sacred that they would not ever think of getting rid of the second amendment because how precious all that shit is. All of those people are, are not the ones holding up any of those ideals. And so since they're the ones that are pretending to, and they're not. It feels like nobody's like going back to that stuff and paying attention to some of that stuff now. Which is this is the time that there is, I think, the most to learn from it in in modern political history in America. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. Register to vote. Do vote. Register other people to vote. It's really fucking important. If you have a local campaign near you that could be a uh, you know a competitive seat, go volunteer for it. Sean, out in Colorado, you've got a local district, the one that Mike Kaufman represents. We've got a really good chance of kicking that motherfucker out of the House of Representatives. So let's kick Mike Kaufman out. Yep. Over here in Iowa, I think it's uh, I've, uh, Iowa's second is a very likely candidate to flip blue. It's one of our best uh, uh, chances to flip uh, a House seat out here. So I should go make some phone calls for that. We should all do our best because our democracy isn't perfect. But it is probably worth fighting for. And Alex, I thank you for your question on YouTube about uh, what we think about Donald Trump and the Republican Party. I think we answered it. Yes. Also, I think James Madison would be 100% fine with them putting fucking Persona Q2 on the 3DS. I think we all know that. 